I'm many things, but uh, a good podcast is not one of them. But you could be if you wanted to. That's just it. I, I don't want to. See, <laughs> Kansas is full of good podcasts, church-going podcasts that get married and raise family, podcasts like John Gale, podcasts like my father, who spent his whole life trilling the dirt just to die face down in it. I, I don't want that. Annie, I, I, I don't want to be a good podcast. I want to be a great one. Trilling the dirt? See, you already messed up in your impression of James Franco in this movie by giving us even a little bit of energy. I know. I was trying to I was trying to pull it back as much as possible. Yeah, you were giving me City by the Sea, James Franco, and I, I need uh, Oscars 2011, James Franco. Do you want an astounding fact? I do. I do want that. He was paid $7 million for his performance in this film. Now, I don't find that astounding relative to where he was in his career at the time, because this was peak James Franco fame, arguably. And this is the moment that tests his box office drawing power. But it is arguably the peak of his fame. The only argument I have against it being the peak of his fame is that he's already hosted the Oscars. Right. And that is where people are like, hmm, are we sick of this guy? Did, like, right? did like, you see the thing? He hosts the Oscars like a week before they closed the deal on this. That makes sense. And there was the thing where it was like, they asked Disney, like, are you having any trepidations? And they're like, no, we believe he is a leading man capable of holding his own within a $200 million temple. Next to an attractive female actress trying her best. Right. The problem with the Oscars was he only had one theatery actress next to him. What if we give him three? My point is just, I, I believe that they would pay him $7 million. Yeah. I cannot believe he would give this performance and go, yep, feels about right. And deposit that check. And uh, that's for me. And thank you. Um, Well, you know, the problem is that he was in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine movies in 2013. Maybe that's why he looks so tired. (laughs) David, also, he was uh, what? He was enrolled full time in two colleges, teaching (laughs) classes (laughs) at a different three. He was wait. He was technically the president of the Maldives. I've seen here. The man kept taking jobs. He wrote 1046 poetry chapbooks. Oh, he, he was astral projecting into the body of William Faulkner. Uh, that, that took up a lot of time. He was texting with 18 of his students. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, or no, maybe very it's true. not true. Th- this, no is the, this is the other thing. When you hear these, like, Franco sex stories, you're like, where does he have the fucking <laughs> time to be a pervert, a creep on top of everything else? Look, James Franco. That, so the... I think I was going to say this on a previous episode, Griff, but probably yeah. a Spider-Man episode. So the peak of his talent to me is 2008 post Spider-Man three. Yeah. And he has pineapple express and milk in the same year. Yeah. And you're kind of like, wow, this guy can give this like incredibly textured, sensitive performance. And he can give this like kind of, unusual goofy performance and both of them really work like, okay when you said uh, unusually uh uh textured uh yeah, sensitive you thought i was talking about pineapple express. express the height of his powers has to be 2010 in 127 hours when they're like one guy on screen for the whole movie that's the thing that might be the height of his stardom right because that's also the year he gets the oscar gig i know he it's early 2011 right but but this is the problem it's like that movie bombs at the box office but he Which totally, uh, 127 hours. Well, yeah, because no one wants to see that shit. Of course. But as my mom, as my mom shit. has joked multiple times, felt like real time. Oh, boy. Th- More like the weeks. That funny thing with that movie where 
they started leaning into the fact that people were like fainting at press screenings and right. they like Fox Searchlight was making T-shirts that was like, I survived 127 hours and promoting like William Castle style, how many right. faintings there were at Toronto. And then it completely backfired. Everyone's like, yeah, I don't want to watch this. It sounds stressful. <laughs> right. And it's actually not quite as bad as that sounds no. like. Uh, it's a pretty good movie. It we'll is. We'll talk about it one day on this podcast, right? But they like oversold the intensity of it. Yeah, and it didn't do well, but it did get Oscar nominated. Gets him the right. Oscar nomination, yeah. totally proves himself as a leading man. Like, that's his best performance, probably. And then the night when he's supposed to be sort of like relishing in, I'm an Oscar nominated actor, he's fucking bombing the job of hosting the show. Like, it feels like that night in a microcosm is the moment he kind of loses it. Yeah, but then he has Spring Breakers a year later. I always forget about Spring Fuck. Breakers. That's his best performance. And he's like, wait, I'm not a leading man. I'm a character actor. And we're like, wait, yes. Yes, you are. And then he's back to Oz and we're like, no, no, no. And he's like, sorry, now I suck forever. He has a handful of performances that I like so much. And that then when feast I- Feast or famine, I keep yes. saying it. But when I, di when I dislike him, I, it makes me like angry. Not only is he terrible, but I get yeah. irate, and when he's bad in something like this, you go like, yeah, no shit, you're bad. You were doing fucking 87 things at the same time, and then doing some interview about how, like, the fact that you were in Oz was some meta commentary on movie stardom or whatever. Shut the fuck up. Go to sleep. Wake up. Do one job. Go back to sleep. There's a Look, Griff, there's just a whole generation, and our guests can weigh in on this as well, of actors like him, Shia LaBeouf, you know, who there's a, there's another obvious one that's not occurring to me right now who like, you know, started out in the Hollywood machine, started out on television maybe. Mm -hmm. And as they drifted further and further into like madness, they started being like, yeah, everything I'm doing is actually kind of an art project commentary on stardom. And I'm like, no, I think you just do too many drugs yes. and or are insane or whatever. Or just like, you have a job, go just do your job. Right. And and like, we all, with Franco, it was the kind of thing where I'm like, man, I had money on you. I yeah. saw you in yes. Freaks of Geeks yeah. when I was 13 years old, and I bought property on Franco Island, and it keeps getting hit with tsunamis, <laughs> yeah. but then like gold will rain from the sky one summer, <laughs> but then there's a fucking tornado, like I had a tornado in Kansas, more like. This movie I also have right. to say, in light of like the allegations that he was like, I don't know like the, the details, but I do know like the rumors where he was like skeezy with his students when he was a sure. professor. And in light of that, the opening scene of him manipulating Absolutely. a female employee so he could have sex with her is disastrous. It is. Why can't he be charming? Why is he incapable of being charming in this role? It is so strange. It is so fucking strange how bad he is. We got to reset. Introduce the podcast. <laughs> Franco's made us too mad already. <laughs> you cannot help but be enraged while watching this movie. <laughs> and he's not the only problem, obviously. But you do no. feel like if someone was giving a performance in the center role who was at least engaging, the movie would be passable entertainment. It would be passable, uninspired entertainment. No, I actually can't agree with that. This movie is terrible. But it would be better. Uh, we'll talk if, about it. It would be better. It would be better. I don't be think better. it's a good movie. Make it clear. I don't think it's a good movie. But uh, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin the Great and Powerful. I'm David the the Porcelain Man.
the the China girl, the top China of the lake, girl. China girl. Yep. Yeah, catch me top of the lake, running away from flying beasts. What if Jane Campion announced I'm doing a third season? It's Top of the Lake: Colon China Girl Two, and this time it's about the China Girl played by Joey King and Oz the Great and Powerful. I would do everything in my power to get in contact with her personally to tell her not to do that. I would pull every like connection I have, being like, "Can I just get on the phone with her for ten minutes? Why is she doing this?" Producer Ben, rude. China Girl, innocent. Don't come for her. She's sweet. I'm not. I'm not coming for her. She's, she's delicate. Don't come for her, David. Her legs. We gotta get glued back together. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I like that Ben likes the China girl. <sighs> she got me good. She's delicate. Has anything ever been less surprising than Ben liking a delicate little thing? I was people a little nice surprised. To? I was a little surprised. Yeah, no, she's she's a sweetie. We'll talk about her more and we'll talk about the podcast. Her. She's a little porcelain sweetie. This is a podcast about filmographies. Directors who are uh, experienced a series of uh, mass success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they follow the yellow brick road they, by bouncing. They bounce on the yellow brick road. I don't know, baby. Listen, it's a miniseries on the films of Sam Raimi. It's called Podcast Be to Hell. It's not called Pod the Cast and Powerful. No. Not bad. Yeah, that way. The only reason we didn't do that is because no one's ever heard of this movie. Absolutely. There are. are, They'd be like, what's that in reference to? This is a fundamental example of a movie that doesn't exist. I feel like sometimes people try to like throw out like, oh, an obscure film and act like it's a movie that doesn't exist. I'm like, no, it it has to be something like this that made $200 million domestically. The paradox. I could be in like the home of a powerful Disney executive who worked on this movie. Right. Who who the money from this successful film paid for the house. Right. And be like, remember Oz the Great and Powerful? They'd be like, huh? Yes. What are you talking about? And I'd be like, you know, the movie, it's a Wizard of Oz prequel. You produced it. Your name is Sam Raimi. You directed it. He'd be like, I don't think I did anything like that. That sounds very silly. I wouldn't do that. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? James Franco, Mila Kunis. He'd be like, yeah. get, get out of here. Zach Braff. No, 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 no. That didn't happen. No, no. Come on. Get it. Just shut up. A- every element of this, people would say, if that happened, I would have remembered it. That's right. a movie that but, doesn't uh, exist. That sounds crazy. I, I, I definitely know about that. Pulitzer no, no, Prize no. winner David Lindsay Bear wrote the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> now I know you're pulling my leg. It's Oz the Great and Powerful. And joining us again, returning to the show from the podcast Noble Blood, Anatomy, A Love Story, Dana Schwartz. Thank you for having me. Dana, I'm realizing this is the second movie that doesn't exist in a row for you. And second, which movie that doesn't exist? And second, like, piece of IP that shouldn't be adapted. Right, right. That's, that's the thing. They're both, even though they're very different films, they both have that energy of like, Surely we can cram this into a box that people will want to open, right? Like overblown, kids star like studded, <laughs> right? Dana, actually, tell me what your fiance said. You have to tell, like repeat it out. You told me what your fiance said while you were watching this. Yeah, so I was I was throwing this movie on, and my fiance doesn't like horror movies and doesn't watch superhero movies, so has no connection to Sam Raimi. And, at and all. Dana, by the way, you've been texting me that this miniseries is what got you to watch the Evil Dead movies for the first time. You never watched any of them because you don't love horror films either. And so you're really kind of like discovering Raimi on a new level recently. No, the the weird thing is I like horror movies. Like as an adult, I oh, watch horror movies. I was it was like, okay. no, no, it was like when I was a kid, like I was born in 1993 and I felt too young and it felt like all like the cool older kids had this like scary, you know, I, I remember the VHS Evil Dead box. 
And just as a child at my video rental store, I clocked in like, that's not for me. And then scary. Sorry, yeah, I, I, your text was that you had never seen it because you liked horror movies, but that looked too scary. Yeah, I just remember like I had it in my head that like, oh, this is something like real fucked up. Like this isn't even a horror movie. Like This is just real scary. And so I was like, all right, well, that's not for me. And then it took sort of like listening to the these episodes to be like, no, I'm going to watch it. And they're great. It helps that my non horror watching fiance has been like, you know, on shoots for work. And so like whenever I'm home alone, I just like throw on the next Raimi movie. It's been a, a wonderful experience and a great education. OK, uh, but what what did he say about Oz, the great yeah. and powerful? So if you could believe it, he did not want to watch this movie. Hmm. And uh, I had it on and he was like sort of half cooking, half watching. And about half an hour in, he was like, this is not a good movie. And I was like, mm. no, it's not. And 40 minutes in, he goes, wait, is this a movie for kids? And I was like- A great question. I don't know, sort of. It's certainly intended that way, right, Griffin? It's a PG film yes. from the is Walt it? Disney Corporation. Yeah. Would kids like this? I don't know. I, I don't think, think so. <laughs> I think people who are on drugs would like this. I don't know, Ben. Don't you think this would fucking bum you out if you were on drugs? Yeah, it might it be a little too flat how and strong. boring. <laughs> right. Well, Ben, like, if you're on drugs so powerful that you're just watching a different movie when this <laughs> is on or whatever, like, then that's fine. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. Then you would really enjoy it. Right. The one thing I feel like of watching a bunch of Sam Raimi movies in pretty quick succession is like, this is a guy who is tight, like he is in mm. and out, minimal exposition, sets up things the way we need. And it's like this movie is all bloat. It's it's yes, it is truly all bloat. It's funny. I in my mind's eye, I saw this in theaters when it came out in 3D or 2D in 3D. And by the way, Dana, I rewatched it in 3D on my 3D television at home. I bought this movie on 3D Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. Something David said would put me on a watch list. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's like a whatever. A, a, a siren goes off. Like there's yeah. only 10 of those in the world. Yeah. Also, this was like the moment when all the studios realized the 3D TV thing wasn't going to work. So they started pulling back. Disney up until that point, when they released movies on 3D, would do a combo back where it was like every format of the movie in one box. For Oz the Great and Powerful, it's just one disc with no special features that's just Aww. the movie on 3D, and they're like, take this, you fucking pigs. Yeah, yeah, you want you want this? Fine. Have <laughs> they it. assume you have yeah. a humiliation fetish if you're buying it. Right. Yes. We're, we're right. not making an effort. No. No, there's like a Blu-ray DVD digital copy comic pack, and then there's just some fucking dirty, disgusting, illicit 3D disc that they throw at you, chuck at your head. Um, this movie was shot in 3D. I mean, you can tell, like, there are moments yes. where you fully expect him to, like, pull out, like, a, a paddle and, like, the ball to be at the, like, the 3D is, like, very obvious. And, and I will yes. say, I do think it works well. It obviously does not save the movie. But I was, as an experiment, watching some of this movie last night in 2D and then woke up and put this on in 3D. And it does make a humongous difference in that it gives you anything compelling happening on screen. Like, it's the one place where I do sort of feel the Raimi and that he seems a little charged by the idea of what he can do in 3D. But otherwise, it is like, look, an obvious analog for this movie is Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which is sure. 
inarguably a worse film. A worse and more successful film, and I assume a film whose success prompted the production of this movie. Directly. This movie is such a shadow of that in so many ways. But I find it fascinating that, like, that's a worse film. I think you and I both agree that that's maybe the worst movie we've ever covered on the podcast. That's the thing. That is not to say that Oz is at all good. I I don't really think it is. Although in the first 15 minutes, I was like, is everyone wrong about this movie? Which you might agree. I think the first 20 minutes are good, which speaks to how catastrophically it falls off a cliff the moment he gets to Oz. That the fact that your fiance, Dana, 30 minutes in was like, this is bad. Because he had just seen everything good this movie had to share. Yeah, and like, it's not it's not good. Like, there were, no. I was like trying to, like my notes, I'm like, it's so condescending. I'm like, this is good. Like, this is like, a, <laughs> right? my notes yeah, are like, like oh, They're trying. <laughs> um, yes, like, but Alice is, Alice is worse. Alice is more grating. Alice is, yeah, it is, it is. My, my point is that Alice feels like a, terrible horrendous tim burton movie like Mm. as much as it is a nightmare and a disaster you're like this is absolutely tim burton fucking up out of control and it is a bummer watching this and just how fucking journeyman like it feels in most regards we're gonna talk about dr strange in the multiverse of madness next week and that is a film that is a lot better than this film in my opinion but beyond that you know i've seen some takes out there that are basically like, you know, Sam's trying, but he can barely make himself, you know, visible in that thing. And I'm like, go watch Oz the Great and Powerful. That is Sam Raimi being drowned out entirely. Like, that is what you are talking about. Then watch Doctor Strange and then go eat a sandwich or take a walk around the block or just don't speak to me. You know, I'd prefer that you just don't speak to me, whoever. And the tragedy of this movie is he's being drowned out by nothing. Like it's white noise on the screen. There is nothing. There's not a not a competing interest that you're like, oh, I can identify what's going on here. It's more just like that that is that noise a good Griff? Do you like that noise? Yeah, that's a great noise. This thing. I mean, the most interesting thing about this movie is just the development process and the weird history of Disney trying to make an Oz film. No, it's the lore of the the witches, the various witches of of Oz. The consistent rules of magic. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. It is bizarre how much Oz there is that is untapped and unadapted, and every time someone tries to come back to it, they essentially don't really use the books. Well, Griffin, "Hmm." we are getting two Wicked movies. This is true. Well, that's, and Dana and I talked about that too, yes, that maybe there will be a bit of an Oz boom. But, you know, we always are, this is the thing, though. I feel like people are always saying that. Yeah. In probably at development meetings and such. And yeah. they're having great ideas like we should split Wicked into two. And they're not ringing David Sims on the phone, which every studio executive should do anytime mm-hmm. they do anything, and saying, like, do you think Wicked should be two movies? And I would be like, no, absolutely right. not. One movie. Right. But David, go, oh, okay, David right. it, in their defense, your pitch would be I think Wicked should be 40 quibbies. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> num 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 num. <laughs> it's me taking bites. I I like Wicked as a musical because I was a preteen girl when it came out. So right, like, you were the I, I'm a musical age. theater girl. Um, I will say my theory with Oz is it's kind of like Arthurian legend, where I think um, mm. studio executives think people like the world because we've heard of it more mm. than they do. 
Yeah. Right. The, the same, right. The same way every 10 years there's a King Arthur movie. People are like, Lancelot's back. And everyone's like, we don't, come on. <laughs> like, We've heard of King Arthur, <laughs> but we have no emotional connection to that world. And that's, I think, kind of how Oz is. It, it's just odd for how much everyone's obsessed with mythology and lore and franchise now that there's like fucking 20 of these books that go in so many different directions. And everyone is just like, there's gold in those hills. Every 10 years, there's some new sort of feeding frenzy. And Wicked's like kind of the only one to work. But still, everyone seems to be so focused on the same four or five things. Right. Well, because they, they want to inform. The, they, they want what they're doing to tie into the very famous children's film that everyone on Earth is seeing. Right. And they're afraid if they tap the sequels that they'll have a situation on their hands where people will be like, where's the Wicked Witch? Where's Return Dorothy? To Oz. It's yeah, Return yeah, to Oz. It'll be a Return to Oz situation. Right. A fucking great movie that terrified people and that lost a, a, a continent's worth of uh, money. Yeah. Continent's worth. To speak to Wicked for a second, Dana, I, you may or may not agree with me. Yeah. I can see the, the mistake they're making, in my opinion. Maybe they'll prove me wrong. Like, I'm willing for John Chu to prove me wrong. He's, he's a good director. Um, but like, one assumes if you're splitting Wicked into two parts, then part one ends with defying gravity, right? Like it will yeah. be act one of the play. And so part one is them at wizard school or at which, college, you know, like, wizard college, yeah, yeah. and it ends with this like absolute slam dunk number. I can see them being like, damn, part one is just going to own. And then part two is a lot of fucking nonsense yeah and it's, lore it's like it's like battles. fiddler on the roof like the second act there are no good songs in it right there's no good songs in the second act of wicked don't don't tell me otherwise well it's no no good deed there's one good song maybe for but good. it's like Two it's a songs. it's a it's a downer like you need yes. the first act to to balance you need popular to balance out no good deed i agree so i just feel like people are not going to be happy about wicked too but maybe they're just sort of like well who cares we already got their money Here's where I will ploy. say, I mean, again, I haven't read Wicked since I was a preteen and I haven't seen Wicked since I was a preteen when I was like, great, I love it. It's my memory, at least with the book, that like there is a world that they build. Unlike the, the book this. rules, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah the, have you read the book, Griffin? Uh, have you read I, the I Gregory Maguire books? But there are yeah, they're good. sequels to the book, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, There's four does, sequels. does it not feel like the smarter thing to do is just make this movie as well as you can? And if it's successful, then you can write original musicals based on the other books. I understand them wanting this to be a franchise, but do, doing this as a two parter is insane. Yes. I mean, the Wicked thing was like so hyped up, so expensive. It was like out of town tryouts where people were like, this is a disaster, bomb incoming with all this high tier talent. Everyone was like, this show is a fucking like embarrassment and then they sort of like salvaged it just in time that critics were like eh it's functional but we still think it's going to lose a lot of money and then it blew up then it was a huge hit although it did lose to avenue q yes but i remember seeing it and going like yeah this thing basically works like barely by the skin of its teeth the things it latches onto are strong enough to carry you through a lot of shoe leather no a, one more a lot of wicked. sweaty mythology that i don't really care about why why would they even need to split it into two parts when they could just cut the goats on they can cut uh something bad and then we're already under two and a half hours. That's a th there's like 30 minutes at, you can cut from that show. <laughs> there's a, a lot of fat on Wicked. Uh, and, and even though it, it it does cut a lot of good stuff out of the book, but whatever. The book of 
you know, the Gregor Maguire book, but we're not talking Wicked. No, but but that's another thing that absolutely, in it, like, I think pushes this movie to the front of Disney's interest. Yes. But I, I also would argue that that's the tragic mistake of this movie is like Wicked was such a cultural phenomenon where even people who haven't seen it have heard the songs and are familiar with it. And like, we don't want another Wicked Witch origin story. No. No, that that's maybe the single biggest mistake this movie makes is that Okay, uh, well as a counter, what if the origin was really clear and well well <laughs> made done? sense and the made magic sense. Was, was yeah. Yeah, and it's like a real 2-hour arc, not like she randomly eats an apple cuz someone tells her to. I also I just cannot believe <laughs> it's like fucking like jilted scorned woman shit. You cannot it's believe horrible. that's the take this movie has is he spends a day with her. She has a crush on him. Then he likes her sister more, so she turns into an evil witch. And, like, he barely likes... It's like he shows the same amount of He's interest friendly. to every pretty woman. <laughs> yeah, Every right. pretty woman, there's a shot of him being, like, seemingly attracted to her, uh -huh. and it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Franco's inability to even conjure up sexual tension with any of the three women in this movie. Very beautiful women. Yes. Uh, very beautiful and charming women. Uh, you're right, uh, but but uh, he has more tension with Zach Braff, uh, far more, in fact. Finley the monkey. Well, no, no, actually, real Zach Braff at the start of the movie. But sure, Assistant Zach Braff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Braff, Braff's got some fucking life in this thing. I I agree. I Braff's Braff MVP. It's like <laughs> insane, but that is my exact opinion. It was my opinion when I saw this movie in theaters, and I was like, nine years ago, you've matured since then. You're just not going to still think Braff is MVP. I'm watching. I'm like, I think I think Braff is the one guy who's who's in the right pitch for this movie. I think yeah. Zach Braff. I think Rachel Weiss gets closest in terms of tone because she's the the most. She's, she's like she, I'm a cartoon. She's, Great, right? Be a she's, cartoon. She knows what to do. She, yeah. Like, yes. Yes. I yeah. would say, and then the 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 best performance for me, I think it's Ted Raimi who shouts, uh, "That's a wire. He has a wire, <laughs> yep. and that nails it. He's great. Nails it. Yeah. He, I mean, Ted always bats clean up in a in a Sam Raimi movie. He always, you know, is given the perfect thing to do, and he and he knocks it out of the park. Oz the Great and Powerful Griffin, mm -hmm. a Sam Raimi film, written as you say by Mitchell Kapner and David Lindsay Abair, the writer of Rabbit Hole play that he nakedly has admitted he basically just wrote to win a Pulitzer Prize, which he did. Which, by the way, right after Rabbit Hole, he gets hired to write Spider-Man 4. He was the main writer on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 4 that didn't happen. So they seemingly had a good relationship. And this is the movie that Raimi signs on to right after Spider-Man 4 falls apart. Yes. Yeah, so as we have briefly discussed, right, Raimi thought about doing a Terry Pratchett adaptation of the We Three Men that fell apart. Raimi wanted to work on The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. uh, when that was spooling up, that fell apart. Then, of the course, shadow? he bought the shadow rights at one point. Well, he's still got them, I think. I right? Know. Like, yeah. Uh, other things, of course, as we've discussed, Spider Man 4. We got into that in our last episode, right, Griff? We don't need to go back. No, nope, I don't think we need to touch it again. Yeah. Um, then uh, Jack Ryan. He was briefly considered for a Jack Ryan relaunch. Right. Um, a sort of Casino Royale type thing I, that I assume is eventually morphs into the the, the Chris Pine movie, right? Yes. Right? There, there was also Evil Dead 4 was like there was a question of, I guess, I mean, Drag Me to Hell kind of took that spot. No, I don't see that here. Uh, he signed on to direct Warcraft. 
Um, did you know that? I did. I did know that, David. I'm just looking here. The, in 2007, they announced. In 2008, he said in an interview that he was writing Evil Dead 4 with Ivan Yeah, but that's pre-Drag uh, Me to Hell. Or I'm okay, talking post-Drag Me to Hell. Fine, yeah. fine, 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 yeah, fine. exactly. But yes, Warcraft, he was fully signed on for. It's fully signed on. Robert Rodat, the writer of Saving Private Ryan, was writing it. Uh, and then Raimi didn't really like the script. And then Blizzard vetoed whatever Raimi wanted to do to it or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, like he got in trouble. Anyway, Blizzard, of course, eventually produced a very competent movie that makes tons of sense that everybody liked. That is still an astonishing fact that uh, was recently, I was reminded of on the Get Played podcast. Still the highest grossing video game adaptation of all time worldwide. Because it made so much money in China. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. movie isn't the worst, but it's not good. Um, but it, it's, also, it's similar to this while being less annoying in that you're just sort of like, your eyes have a hard time staying glued on the screen. A little bit. A little bit. A lot of, lot of visual information to take. And then I, I, we don't need to talk about Warcraft. That's we too don't. big. Uh, too big we uh, could, though. I don't know. All right. Let's talk about Warcraft. No. Uh, all right. So Mitchell Kapner, Griff, who wrote Mike, a movie that I feel like you liked when you were a kid, the whole nine yards. Am I right? Am I, I, am I crazy? Okay. That wasn't no. my favorite. Yeah. I guess you weren't really a friends kid. So you weren't really no. rooting for like the friends cast. Maybe, maybe I don't know. That was maybe just, it was like the you one man. loved the whole no, nine yards? I don't think I've ever seen all of that movie. I really? think I've seen like 50 minutes of it on cable. Okay. I don't think I ever re- like, I don't know. Amanda Pete's in it, right? Michael yeah, Clark Michael Duncan. Clark Duncan. Yeah, I've never seen that. Um, I'm I'm rooting for anyone in the studio uh, sixty on the Sunset Strip cast, so that's why I was a big well, fan of pizza. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, kind yeah, of forgot that Perry. Pre- yeah, oh, I forgot yeah. Studio yeah. Six, 60 was a was a whole nine yards reunion. Kapner claims that he actually would pitch an Oz musical to people when he would like have Broadway meetings, and that like he thinks Wicked, you know, whatever, like stole his thunder on that. Sort of, sort of weird. But he finally sits down with Joe Roth, who mm-hmm. produced this movie, but also produced Alice in Wonderland, and also produced Snow White and the Huntsman, another Maleficent, film in this I think he's a producer zone. on as well. I think, I think so. He was sort of leading the charge on this, the, the early wave of the big live-action fairy tale Disney movie remakes. Right. And, well, which was a cash cow for a while, obviously. Yeah, yes. And, um... After every after Roth shoots down every pitch, Roth is basically like, "What are you reading right now?" Roth says, "Like I felt sorry for the guy. I kept shooting everything down." And Kapner's like, "I'm reading the Oz books to my kids." Mm-hmm. And Roth is like, "What do you mean Oz books?" And Kapner's like, "There's like 14 Oz books. Like, what do you you know? I'm reading all these." Roth did not know this. Insane. So I don't know though what happens here. I guess someone else owns. Oz rights is that is that the no, problem? No, 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 okay. no one because they're like basically someone owns the Wizard of Oz, the the movie, the Wizard of Oz. Right? I, I can problem. I can clarify this a little bit. The the books are public domain, but you uh, Warner Brothers through purchasing the original film from MGM still has copyrights on proprietary elements in their movie. Such as the Wicked Witch, right? Almost yeah, all the, the visual right. designs. The way like, things they have look. copyrights yes, right. on. The look of the yellow brick road, Dorothy's slippers, because in the book, they're not Ruby, you know, yeah, uh, the, witch, in the, book. the witch designs like when that movie became so huge and continued to last and copyright laws were going to put the books back into public domain. 
Warner Brothers started copywriting like every individual visual element of the movie that was not described as such in right. the books. Very the other smart. part of this is that Joe Roth said that he was constantly trying to solve this problem of uh, there are no fairy tales for boys. What's a fairy tale with a boy? Wait, in no, it? no fairy tale with male protagonists. I, they truly Hollywood just knows how to find an answer to a question no one needs. To right, what about Aladdin or Hercules. This insane shit, though. But it's, he was it's like, where they always go. It's what you, we've said this yeah. so many times on the Musker Clements podcast, Griff, where Disney's yeah. like. Huh, so we just made a billion dollars on Beauty and the Beast. But what if there was a boy? Like, yes. Can we have a boy? More boy <laughs> shit. And, and they're rolling in money. I've told this a thousand and one times, but I'm working at the Disney store in Times Square in 2011. And as part of like the employee training, because that company is so all about like, you have to be vertically invested in everything going on in every tier of the company. Even if you're a part-time cast member, at a fucking Times Square store, they were like, Disney's really been struggling to get boys in. Like, I remember our manager saying that to us as part of some, like, fucking, you know, major, I, I don't know, the fucking annual quarterly whatever. And he was like, that's why we just bought Marvel and uh, Star Wars. Yeah. And that's the new initiative. But this is coming off of, like, Tron Legacy not totally working. The Pirates movies are each making less than the last. And then Cars is, like, their biggest thing for boys. So they end up solving this problem by just buying Marvel and Lucasfilm. But there's this period of like John Carter, Tron Legacy, Oz the Great and Powerful, Prince of Persia, where they're just like, we need a fucking thing that little boys like. And uh, yes, Joe Roth, I think, just was like dollar signs like, oh, you could make a movie about Oz. Yeah, right, but this is his mistake. He's Who like, gives oh, a shit about this that's guy. a man, and it's like, well, right. no, 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 that's that's not interesting. <laughs> Simply that he is a man. Also, who likes grown men? Nobody. <laughs> no, grown men <laughs> suck. <laughs> um, so they take the pitch to Sony. Sony says no. They take it to Disney, who have been apparently trying to figure out an Oz movie. Disney says yes, uh, and the the directors interested are Sam Mendes. And there's another one apart from Raimi. Wait, I, I could have sworn uh, there was there. Yes, there is. Mendes was fully on board developing this thing for like a year or two. Adam Shankman was also Oh, considered. my favorite director. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But no, Sam Mendes, right, uh, was going to make this movie, but Skyfall took it away from him, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole complicated process of making that. And so it was going to be him and Downey Jr. This is the period of time where Downey Jr. is trying to stretch out his movie star status and does not end up making any of the things but he's uh, close to doing this he's close to doing inherent vice he's close Which to doing gravity so yeah I, I like Clooney and gravity but he would have been better than anyone in those movies yeah he would have been i think leaps and bounds better than franco in this he i mean he would bring this movie up a, a full star like even if he was giving a doolittle-esque performance yeah it would be something he would have like pathos. You would root for him a little bit. And also, I think you would buy that he could actually con these people. Like th the thing that's so uh, astounding about Franco's performance is that like the root of this character is he's a guy struggling to convince people, right? Like he's this fucking con artist who's like trying to sell people on this idea that he's actually a wizard. And James Franco cannot convincingly sell the idea that he's a con artist. Despite like he, being somewhat of a con artist. Right. He, the thing he lacks the energy to do is convince you that he's trying to convince you. 
Yeah, he doesn't. He, you know, who else would be good in this role? I, I realized would be Hugh Jackman. He doesn't Hugh, have showman Hugh energy. Would have done very well. Hugh Jackman would work for this. Yes, and he's good at the. You know, you feel Hugh Jackman sweating. Like he's good at yeah. making you feel himself sweating. James Franco doesn't want to sweat. I guess this in this role movie is yeah. entirely about effort, which makes yeah. Franco as the choice astounding. David, just I won't go too deep into this, but the other sidebar necessary to this is. Uh, after Snow White, Disney's designs are to do Oz as an animated movie next. And he starts sort of talking up in interviews that he would like to do an Oz film. And that's when um, uh, Sam Goldwyn uh, takes the rights preemptively mm -hmm. away from Disney and sets up the MGM movie. Um, and then in the 50s or 60s, uh, Disney bought the rights to the books when he right. wanted to make his transition into live action. And he was going to make a movie. It was the original cast of the Mickey Mouse Club who were now aging out. And he wanted a pipeline for them to do something. So he announced he was going to do a film called The Rainbow Road to Oz. Uh, mm -hmm. And he had the, um, the Sherman Brothers write songs. Right. And, and we set on Rainbow Road and Toad yep. was going to be there and Bowser and Wario and all Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Okay. It was cool. a mm -hmm. uh, thrill ride. It was a, it was a tournament uh, race. Uh, and... Um, they did like Wonderful World of Disney specials that were like him previewing Rainbow Road to Oz. And then they sort of like put it up on his feet and he was like, this thing sucks. So they make Babes in uh, Toyland instead. And that's like his his live action musical. And it goes by the wayside again. And then obviously in the 80s or the 70s, Walter Murch has a general meeting with Disney. And he mentions that he's always wanted to make an Oz movie. And Roy Disney at that point in time is like, fuck the Oz thing. Walt always wanted to do the Oz thing. So then they make that attempt at doing it when Disney is like, can't get anything to hit. And that's also a big flop. So there's this like weird decades long history of Disney wishing they had gotten to Oz first and constantly asking themselves, why aren't we able to make an Oz thing work? Oz should be owned by Disney. That fits into the brand so well. That's the Oz story. Um, but the problem, like you say, is that everyone keeps trying to tie it back to the main film. And this script comes to Sam Raimi, who I guess is right across the lot from Joe Roth at the time. And Sam Raimi says, absolutely not. I love The Wizard of Oz. I'm not touching The Wizard of Oz. And Joe Roth is like, oh, this is a prequel. Read the story, screenplay. And according to Joe Roth, Sam reads the screenplay and says, God, I'd love this. I'd love to do this. Maybe he'd just been hit in the head with something very hard, do you think, maybe? Like an anvil or something? No. Uh, he yeah. loved the screenplay? That was what convinced him? <laughs> Do you think he was actually, actually reading the screenplay to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Do you think that's what it was? Yes, yes. But this is great. And then they swapped it out at night <laughs> right. while he was sleeping. He showed up on set. He said, what are these munchkins doing here? Um, there's a special feature uh, on this movie, uh, on the digital edition, because the 3D doesn't have any special features, the disc itself, um, that is fucking Franco did one of his documentaries. Right. It's like a film right. by James Franco called like My Journey to Oz or whatever the fuck it's called, where it's sort of like verite interviews with Braff and he pretty much gets everyone other than Rachel Weiss, who is mm. not anywhere to be seen in this thing. Um, but it's it's a dumb Franco thing with with color filters on it. Uh, it's one of those things like him being the one guy who was given permission to make a fucking Saturday Night Live documentary. And you're like, they never let anyone do this. You were the one who weaseled your way in and you somehow made the least interesting movie 
about a week at SNL possible. Like, the star of a movie having a camera and being given access to interview everyone on the set of a $200 million blockbuster like this is interesting, and what he gets is largely boring. But uh, the Raimi interviews in it are really good. And a thing that Raimi says is, Raimi fucking loved magic as a kid. He was a little junior magician. That was his whole fucking jam. And uh, his older brother, uh, who died tragically when he was young and whose death kind of haunted him, yes, was the one who like got him into magic, got him into movies. And uh, as he got older, he transitioned more into being interested in the illusions, but not needing to perform them himself. And then that becomes filmmaking and all that sort of stuff. When Raimi talks about that connection and that background, it feels so fucking personal to him in these like shitty Franco couch interviews where I totally in that moment understand why he signed on for this movie, where he's like, the thing I like is that I've always considered myself a showman and a trickster, and I like playing with the audience, and I like that sort of journey, and I like that this is a character who's trying to stay one step ahead of people, but also not be caught for a phony. And then he says, like, he he literally says to Franco, I mean, I might ask you to cut this out, because I don't know who's even going to see this anyway, but like, I still don't feel like I'm a director. I feel like I'm an actor playing a director. Oh, and Franco's like, what are you? Syndrome. Right. Franco's like, what are you talking about? You like are the ultimate, you wear a suit and you walk out and you're like, let's roll on this picture. And you say all these old timey things. And he's like, right. But I feel like I'm an actor saying lines. Like I'm acting like my notion of an old timey Hollywood director. And I still think I'm going to be caught at any time. And you're like, so the fucking root of this thing, Raimi is like so connected to this character but this script is so lacking in any specificity that i understand him going like oh i see an arc i could connect to here but how is this what you end up with griffin that like makes me sad hearing it because it sounds like a seed of what could have been an interesting movie Absolutely. of like if this character was a magician and like liked the show and that was played up like him wanting to trick people and like the difference between a trick and a show and performance like those are interesting themes and like the moment that i think is maybe most interesting in this entire film is when he's doing his fucking routine in kansas and joey king is the girl who yells out from the audience can you make me walk and this guy who just sort of glides through life and charms everyone fucks whoever he wants and does these tricks and makes his money and goes to the next town and doesn't feel any guilt about it, realizes, like, is there something to the fact that I'm now letting an innocent person believe that there is a cure Magic. for her? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that, yeah, is Joe King is one of the better performances in this movie. I guess she's also the China girl, so. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's, that's a point in her favor, according to Ben Hosley. But the fact that that remains the main theme of the movie, and yet it never works. Yeah. Raimi, you know, he's someone I just he's a good pitchman. Like anytime he's interviewed for a movie, he says all the right stuff. You know, everything he's saying in here sounds perfectly clever about like, oh, you know, it's a movie that pays homage to Oz. And I fell in love with that movie. But this is a love poem to it and all that. And where I'm like, yeah, kind of. I guess so. Not really. But like, I guess like there could be a version of this movie that would work that way like any of these prequels do, right? In that slightly kind of cloying way. Um, when he signs on, Griffin, he mm-hmm. re- eliminates, he starts revising the screenplay. He eliminates a tribe of humanoid knives and forks from the screenplay. Why'd he do that? That sounds yeah, so- good. Sounds rad. 
That sounds way better. There were a few moments where you could see that something was cut where you're like, oh, this would have more impact because I could tell a scene was cut. Like he has a thing with a knife where I'm like, the knife didn't really do anything. And I feel like his jackknife, right? Yeah, the jackknife where I could almost see that like there was a thread with this that you you lost. The jackknife is, yeah, it's a lot like that's the stupid necklace and evil dead or whatever. It's like a totem. Yeah. No, what were you going to say, Griff? No, I was going to say it sounds like Ben's pitch for Crocodile Dundee 3, like giant talking, walking knives. No, knife son. Knife son. Knife son. Raimi introduces Munchkin Nuck, uh, played by Tony Cox in the film. Uh Uh-huh. He brings in David Lindsay, a bear, uh, to to make it more of a selfish guy learning to be selfless kind of character arc thing, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. very Raimi. Yeah. He wanted a character who wasn't innocent because Oz is an innocent movie. It's a story of innocence. Alice is a story of innocence. I wanted this guy to be caddish, a womanizer, a heel, a cheat, you know, find his heart. That'd be a really interesting journey. And then, I'm reading here, he quoted as saying, and then I decided to cast James Franco to make my work even harder for me. No, he doesn't say that part. Um, uh, uh, Five comedy uh, points, David. But that's right. (laughs) On its face, you understand Raimi seeing in his mind's eye a version of this movie that works with like an Ash type, right? Yeah. If he is full fucking army of darkness, arrogant Ash, bullshitting his way through every situation. That would be better. And the problem is, even though James Franco, even though Oz at this point, like in this movie, they frame it as like a pretty girl. He meets her. He's like, I guess, charming. And she immediately falls in love with him. Like, even though that's how they present this movie is like, meets a girl, meets a girl, meets a girl. Like, he has no nothing with any of them to the point where you're like, is he supposed to be a cat or is this all like a bunch of women in like a -a make-a-wish program trying to be nice to this boy? But it truly just every single thing about his performance feels like first take cold reading of scene. Yep, it does. Very cold read energy. He he doesn't have energy chemistry with any of the women. And he is working with three of the most beautiful and charismatic women in Hollywood. He does not feel like he's really committing to the magic acts whenever he has to do the showman thing. Whenever it's him just reacting to things happening around him, it doesn't feel like specific. It's just kind of, it's so nothing. And I do think, I mean, because the other guy who got close to doing it was Depp. uh, And it didn't happen because of Lone Ranger. He dodged one bullet for a different, worse bullet. But uh, Joe Roth tried really hard to get Depp to do this when Downey Jr. dropped out and the movie, he wanted to keep it uh, in the air. It does feel a little telling that they were looking at that age range where it does feel like this would work a little better if the guy's a little bit older and it's a little more desperate and pathetic in that sense. But also, if it's Downey Jr. and the guy has a little more menace, you know? I will say my, I I think I texted this to to David, but like, you, I think you've said this on the podcast too. It's like, James Franco for a good third of the movie has the energy of a hot boy in a school play laughing with his friends in the front row, being like, no, guys, guys, I'm doing it. And then he delivers the line. But you <laughs> right. think at any moment he could be like snickering with his like hot jock friends. Like Just, he's uh, the hot stupid. guy. Yeah. yeah. It's perfectly <laughs> yeah, I said. Know. I know. I know. Oh, no. It's uh, the wizard. No, guys. No, we got to go. But the crazy thing is this is his fourth movie with Raimi. Like when I watch him be this kind of bland in something like Rise of the Planet of the Apes, 
where I'd argue he's as sleepy in that, but the movie is... The movie's a little better, so... It's at a smaller tone, and the movie's better, so his performance sticks out less in this, where he's just, like, not matching the chaos around him at all. This, he's like, I signed on because I love Sam. Sam's the director I've worked with the most in my career. We have such a good relationship. He's so fun. I love our language. And Sam was like, you know, I mean, we always worked well together, but this is a whole different thing because he's the whole movie for me. It's on his shoulders. Like they talk about each other with such fondness. Uh, Yeah, which makes sense that they have a good working relationship. They've worked together so many times. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Sam looks at this movie and is like, James, like screwed me over on this. I don't I have no idea. What Dana's talking about, the, you know, what you're talking about, the the high school quarterback mocking the school play kind of energy makes more sense to me if he is doing this film with almost any other director. Yeah. It, it is surprising to me that he can't commit himself more and that Raimi can't get more out of him. And I do wonder if it is truly just a thing. He did his long form interview recently, which was like his first thing in three years where he was sort of trying to talk about the accusations of sexual misconduct for the first time. And one of the things he talks about for a long time is just like that it took him years to recognize that he was doing too much. Right. That he was just like, it's insane. Why was I doing fucking 15 things a day at any given point in time? And none of it was good. I was telling myself that I was doing all this well and I wasn't. And this is just so emblematic of that thing where he's just like, well, if I have time in the day to do three takes, then I will do them well. Versus like, no, it's about your headspace. It's about the energy you're putting into it, the focus, the thought. Well, he was busy adapting Faulkner. So a huge problem they have, Griffin, is that, as you mentioned, the United States Eighth Court Circuit of Appeal, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals rules right when they're in pre-production on what you're talking about, which is essentially that the MGM library, now owned by Warner Brothers, does own the rights to images essentially from these movies like you know like not just the wizard of oz but like gone with the wind like they find mm-hmm. they're like look Rhett butler looking like clark gable they own that like you can't right, it was right. because people were selling pictures like promotional mm. pictures mm-hmm. like a merchandising company was you could just buy like a wizard of oz still from them or whatever and then warner brothers was like no 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 we own like these images as much as these things are in the public domain they agree with that and that's a huge problem for Sam Raimi, who was planning on a movie that was wildly reverential to The Wizard of Oz, like how it looks. <laughs> Yellow brick roads and such. <laughs> all that. Like, by all accounts, that sort of happened like five or six months before they started filming. Like, they had to totally redesign everything. Uh, like, this is not a good quote from him. Legally, we're unable to recreate the images from the film, which is a shame because it's really all about honoring that film. And the books, but more the film, in my opinion. I'm like, Sam, <laughs> that doesn't sound good if that was your whole game plan. Quit like, the movie. Right. You quit other movies. Yeah. And then their choice of, like, since we can't use these specific images, we'll instead just fill this movie with no memorable imagery at all. And we have to talk about Robert Stromberg for a second, I think. Robert Stromberg is the guy who uh, is the production designer. Yes. On Alice in Wonderland and is makes Maleficent. He does right? a, he does Avatar. He does Alice in Wonderland. He does this. He directs Maleficent. He I would argue has a bizarrely large impact for those five years he on does. blockbuster and, cinema. And you know I'll say those movies are mostly colorful, which yes. I do yeah. feel like is part of his thing. Yes, 
people complain about you know movies being so colorless. You know the other movie he's the production designer on, Griff? What? The BFG. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Which, I'm sorry, that's the also final colorful. one in this movement, but they all have the same kind of look. And, yep, they do. Uh, you know, we just saw the Avatar trailer in 3D. Sure. It just came out. The and Avatar that thing trailer, of course. Pops, yes, the way water. Uh, mm-hmm. Pops up on screen. We're wearing 3D glasses, and you're just immediately like, oh, right, back in Pandora. Color, colors. Right. Bright colors. Right. And, but, but, but Pandora does have restraint. Like, there is that Cameron thing where he's so fucking obsessed with, like, the logic of the flora and the fauna and the ecosystem and how it uh, works in tandem and all this stuff that, like, nothing is, like, designy for designy's sake. And I feel like BFG, Alice in Wonderland, this, and Maleficent, all of this similar thing where there's just, like, they're so saturated. There's so much fucking going on in every single frame. Like, it's just so loud. There's so much detail. There's so much movement. There's so much color. And it, like, short circuits my brain a little bit. There's no, there's no terrar. There's no, like, anchoring in the yes. world. Like, you, that, that feels like the, the worst way to put it. But you know what I mean? Like, there's no grounding. It doesn't feel real. And he has, like, really impressive work early in his career. And then Avatar is obviously, like, this, like, huge achievement. He wins an Oscar. And then after this, this is, like, his blank check period where movies all start to have the Stromberg look. He does the ones I mentioned. But also, it starts to become a thing that I think everyone else is following a little bit. And then now, maybe people have started pulling back again. But it does feel like, oh, now for the first time, we have the budget and the technology and the time to make movies look like concept paintings. Every still image of this movie looks like something you would see in the wall of a production office and go like, wow, that looks great. And then Raimi would say like, well, that's not really the shot. That's more of a tonal setting of what we're going Mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. And then every single image in this looks like something from an art of blank book Mm. that is just overwhelming. So while they're making this movie, Griff, Disney has lawyers on set. People, there are lawyers on set that are making sure this film does not infringe upon the Wizard of Oz copyright. Sounds like a (laughs) fun, chill environment that is conducive to creativity. Exactly. So the yellow brick road, no skipping down it. It doesn't spiral, okay? There's no munchkin land because the 1939 film actually invented munchkin land whole cloth. I feel like this is the most cited thing about this movie. The shade of green skin for the yes. Wicked Witch is different. Uh, they tested numerous types. It's not quite as bright green as Margaret Hamilton's. They, they know, couldn't do the mole. Know. I think it's one right. of the reasons couldn't why. Do the mole. She still gets a big old nose, which is she I does. don't like. I and don't love chin. that. Yeah, the, the nose is very uh, is very prominent, but different shape. And, and, like. yeah, and the uh, face, wide eyes. I was going to say, the face shape is so bizarre in this. I mean, they cast two like heart face actresses to play the two evilly witches. And then they intensify that face shape so much with the makeup, which I wonder is them going against how long Margaret Hamilton's face was. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't like where they ended up. I don't like the look for Mila Kunis much The thing at about all. it is that it looks bad. It doesn't look it's correct. That's the it, issue. It uh, I don't the, like looking at it. They, they are uh, supposedly blending the original Wicked Witch with uh, the Frankenstein skin color, and they called the shade of green Theostine for whatever reason. Perfect. Uh, the Emerald City looks different. They make it look a little more Art Deco, uh, a little more less not rounded edges, right? It's got mm-hmm. kind of blocky. Yes. 
Uh, no ruby red slippers, of course. Uh, this did not bother Rachel Weiss, who said, quote, gemstone shoes aren't really my style. I'm more of a black leather kind of person. Step on me, Rachel Weiss. Yeah, that is a quote JJ put in the dossier and said that quote should be illegal. <laughs> he calls it very powerful. One thing, one thing that I did read that the lawyers made them do specifically is they did say that James Franco had to fuck Dorothy's mom. Right. They, they said that. Right. Yeah. And and they also made sure that uh, it couldn't be fun at all. Right. There was a guy, there was a guy on set who had like little square glasses and he was dressed like a 1950s school teacher. And anytime anyone was having fun, he would be like, <clears throat> and right. everyone would stop having fun. They were and like, that's actually, why the movie's no fun. Frank Morgan was very charismatic in his role of the wizard in the original <laughs> film, and Warner Brothers has copyrighted charisma. Uh, yeah, no, well, The Wizard of Oz is famously fun, so this can't yeah, be that. An yeah. enjoyable movie for children. Yeah, this guy has to, has to suck butt. I mean, the other irony of the lawsuit stuff, or, or rather the sort of IP tiptoeing stuff, is like most of those laws and their stringency is based on a century of Disney battering down it's, IP. That, this, is, this is true. To this help true. them. Yes. Yes, right. Disney had its weapons turned on on itself or whatever. Right. A little Especially bit. with yes. all that shit of like the amount of Disney films that are based on public domain stories where they have really strong rights, uh, copyrights on specific visual elements or what was their creation. Like they're actually absolutely getting hoisted by their own petard here. They are. Um, okay. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is the first choice. An yep. off-told story is that Raimi gifted him a bean plant, but then it withered and died. Uh, That's so sweetie. It is. It is. It is. According to the Los Angeles Times, he left the project because he had he wanted to improvise. The, this the story is even more depressing than that. He had a meeting with him. Downey Jr. was on the fence. He was like, "Can I come back and can we take another meeting?" Goes back to his home four months later sees the dead plant in the corner. Ooh, look, I can't keep a plant alive either. I sympathize, Robert. Um, but this makes sense. Like that Robert yep. Downey Jr., the first thing he wants to do is improvise, right? That's his whole thing. Mm -hmm. I want to just like, blah, 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 blah. Sam Raimi does not want to do that. Sam Raimi is a meticulous guy. He yeah. is not interested in that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, the exact same reason Downey Jr. doesn't do gravity is Quiron exactly. is right. like, we there's too much shit going on around movie. me. You right, have to have right, these specific right. movements. And he's like, I can't do this. You got to let me do whatever the fuck I want. This is the whole thing with Downey Jr. where he needs to be making small movies, but he doesn't want to do that anymore right. for reasons, plus, you know, that are, that make sense. And also whatever, you know, he could yeah. stand to maybe chill out a little bit, but right. So instead he tries to crowbar this into massive productions and, you know, with Marvel, it basically works. And with something like Doolittle, you're like, what is he doing? You know, like, what, what, why is no one stopping this? But Marvel has also essentially built their entire pipeline reverse engineered from how he works. Right. It is, yeah. it is the, it's it, true. It's kind of the reason why so often the Marvel movies don't have distinctive style behind them is because they make them in this very malleable way that I think is truly reverse engineered from him. Yeah, he's he's like an auteur on this right. MCU. Even even style. now that yeah. he's gone from them, and uh, but but I, on these other movies, if he says, "Okay, I want to move my head two inches that way," they go like that costs an additional five million dollars. <laughs> um, okay, they try to lure Johnny Depp, as you say, it doesn't work. They bring in James Franco because things are so crunched. His agent gets him a salary of seven million dollars. Uh, Raimi quote, I knew that James had a real heart inside of him. I think at first he was too close for me to see. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, I thought he was. He basically sort of saying like, I used to think he was a little smug, but now he's come more out of his shell. And it's like, okay, I, all of this just feels. If he was, if he was smug in this movie, that would have been good. That's, that would have been something. Would have helped. Would have helped. All of Raimi's quotes are just like, I hired him for his kindness, <laughs> his generosity of spirit, a perfect fit for a family film. And you're like, no, make him. I, I don't know. Just the, This character needs to be somewhat salacious. He is sleepwalking through different women telling him different things. And he just believes what the last woman tells him. Yeah. Franco loves the Oz books. He claims he's very into all of this. Uh, yeah, he read them uh, all yeah, one yeah. afternoon while he was piloting while a he plane. Was, while he was lecturing at Yale University on particle physics. Yeah. Um, Mila Kunis comes in. She's right off of Black Swan and Ted. Yeah. So she she is, I guess, right. Ryan's right. So and like forgetting high. Sarah yeah. Marshall yeah. is only a, a few years ago. This is Pete Kunis, right? This Am I wrong? Moment, no, this is the moment where like. Her and Franco in this movie are very much Hollywood testing out two people and saying, you've been around for a while, but the last couple of years you really connected. Are you ready to be A-listers? And Mila's two big swings are this and uh, Jupiter Ascending. And then arguably friends with benefits in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't good. I don't know. Do you have Cunis takes, Dana? I like forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yes. I don't... I think she's good in Black Swan. I mean, I guess I don't like her in this, but it's not really her fault. I never watched that 70s show, so I like don't have any feelings for her one way or the other. It, I watched this th- stupid fucking Franco doc uh, interview thing, and she's in full makeup, in full costume in her trailer when he's interviewing her. So she's giving really interesting answers in this horrible unfortunate getup, right <laughs> that looks even worse in like trailer lighting than it does in the finished film if you can imagine and she's talking so honestly and candidly about like they offered this to me and i said absolutely not that is a death sentence that is like a playing a witch is always like a whole fucking can of worms then you're also playing the most famous witch in the history of movies and you can't get too close to what she did before but if you go too far away then people won't accept it and there's the wicked thing and that like she took a meeting with Raimi because she liked him but she was just like there's no way I can do this this is like just an impossible ask and then when she met with him they talked about the character for four hours and she was like I really found my in and I like found right. the heart of her and all this sort of stuff and it's it bums me out so much to watch this performance not work because I do think it is not for lack of trying I think she's really giving it her all and it fundamentally does not work. It's a terribly written role. Like all the women in this movie are, everyone is poorly written, but the women are tragic. They're all bad. She ends up, I think, being the most embarrassed by this movie just because this movie asks the most of her. But, But like both halves of the character equally don't work before and after transformation. You know, it's interesting. After this... She's, you know, she's in a couple of things that don't exist, like third person and the mm-hmm. angriest man in Brooklyn. But, you know, she does have Jupiter Ascending, which we all are very fond of. A perfect film. Right. And I think she's great in it. Yeah. I think but, she's really charming in that movie. But, but like, dings her career. That was this and it dings her career a little bit. Are the two big budget. But the, yeah. And she had Bad Moms, which was a surprise oh. hit. Yes. And then she did Bad Moms Christmas, which didn't do as well, but still made still money. Still a hit. Yeah. 
And then she did The Spy Who Dumped Me, which didn't do as well, but still made money. But we're on a downward slope. I think that movie's fun. But yes. Yeah, you've yes. said it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then Suzanne last, and Dave. Yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah. A couple of, um, yeah, Susanna Fogel wrote it. Uh, yeah, and David Arison, right. Uh, Four Good Days, which was this Sundance movie from Rodrigo right. Garcia, where she plays someone who's going into detox and Glenn Close plays her mother, which got a weird Oscar nomination for a song. That yes. thing is as much of a bummer as it sounds. Breaking news in Yuba County. That's the other. I don't know what that is. That <laughs> I, is I gotta be honest That is you. a, it's a Taylor movie. Taylor right? movie. Yeah. Starring Allison Janney, Regina Hall, Mila Kunis, Aquafina, Wanda Sykes, Ellen Barkin. Big cast. Uh, well, it's made one hundred eighty thousand uh, dollars, and it got terrible reviews. I just, she just hasn't done much. I guess is what I'm trying to say. She seems to. She had kids. She seems to just sort of pick her projects. She's in a Cheetos commercial at the moment. It seems like that's cool. I love Cheetos. They're delicious. Delicious. She continues to be in every episode of Family Guy. <laughs> Which is money upon money. I mean, that is so much. So that's a good, right. So you doesn't have to worry about anything. But like, much like Channing Tatum of Jupiter Ascending, I could see her having uh, a comeback. I you know, too. I feel like everyone's still pro Mila Kunis. They're making uh, that 90s show. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I don't yeah. think that's the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't either. But I think she's coming back for that. I mean, they're because the show is the grandparents raising... The kids, but then all the legacy cast. And then everyone else can do cameos. Part. Like, Kerwood right, Smith right, is right. the lead of that show. As he, he should be the lead of all shows. Yeah, I just don't need it to be that 90s show. Just call it the Kerwood Smith show. What if it was called the Kerwood Smith show? That's what I want. Her, her character in this movie, when she meets... The wild thing that they ask her to do is when she's uh, the- Theodora. Yeah, she She's sure like a, a simpleton. <laughs> Is she like a simple very child? naive. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. She like calls her sister like sister. And she like basically, uh, Rachel Vice is at the top of the stairs like cackling. And she's like, my good, kind sister. <laughs> right. Rachel Vice all in black. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Draped in spider webs. <laughs> right. Uh, Dana, have you seen Maleficent? No, I haven't. So Maleficent's the year after this. It's Stromberg. David, have you seen it? I've seen both Maleficence. Right. Oh, yes. Well, the Mistress of Evil. Mistress of Evil. Pretty wild movie. Uh, I, I don't love the first Maleficent, but it is no. fascinating how much it sort of works to try to earn the biggest thing this movie throws away, which is like that whole movie is based around the Maleficent as scorned woman thing. Yeah. But yes. really forming an actual relationship of intimacy and time and depth where the betrayal is so grand, where she is cast out, and then the whole movie is arguing she is actually not bad. She was framed that way. And this movie is right. like, she talked to a guy for an hour. Then she saw him talking to someone else and got so angry she turned into a witch and threatened to eat children. She met one man. <laughs> right. Yeah, she met one man. But and treated it like it was the first man she'd ever met in her life. That's which maybe it. it like, is. I mean, wild. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this movie largely being her and Franco on the road until she goes bad. And I forgot that it's like, no, that chunk is like 15 minutes. Then a Pretty lot cool. of the movie is him with Michelle Williams while yeah. Rachel Weisz is whispering Michelle Mila Kunis's ear, be evil. <laughs> um, the other thing about Maleficent is, I know, and this, I mean, no offense to any of the actors in Oz, but Angelina Jolie 
as much as people like to malign her, is an insanely compelling screen presence yes. who is really putting it on the line in that movie. Yes. That movie is stupid. Yes. Undeniably. But she's got so much presence that you kind of just buy it. Also, it's set in an even vaguer world than Oz. It's yes. just sent in like fantasy land. Right. And that almost is good because then you don't even care at it all about like what is any of this. Whereas this has a little too much uh, like trying to sell you on like, ah, the land of Oz. And you're like, can you explain the rules of the land of Oz? And they're like, the land of Oz. Like, that's all they've got for you. They don't they and you're, can't explain. And you're like, else. so I can carry over the rules I know from the old Oz movie. Right. And they're like, <laughs> no, shut up. Not legally. <laughs> New Don't rules. talk about that. <laughs> Be quiet. What are the rules? We're not going to tell you. Uh, along with Mila Kunis, we've got Michelle Williams. It is an interesting tidbit, Griffin. Michelle Williams had never worked on a movie with a production longer than 10 weeks before this movie. Wow. She That's truly, this funny. is like, this is like her first big budget movie ever. And she's like, what the fuck is all this? Like, she's used to small movies where everyone feels like a family on set, I guess. There was that crazy stat uh, when the all the money in the world reshoots happened, and Michelle Williams did them for scale, and Mark right. Wahlberg got Wahlberg like an got additional a money, million dollars or something like that. Yeah, right. Whatever it was, it came out that Michelle Williams had never been paid over a million dollars for a movie ever. Very rude. Rude. We're just like you're like, how much did they pay her for this? How much did they pay her for Venom? Well, no, Venom. Venom is after. Venom is the one where she's no. no Venom is the one where she's finally like, I got mine. But this is the one where you're like, why wasn't she paid a reasonable salary for this? She's all over this movie. The fact that she got less than a seventh of what James Franco got. Right. That that's that seems weird to me. Like, I, but I don't know. I mean, Michelle Williams at this point, Griffin. What? Where are we with Michelle Williams? Apart from that, she rules. Uh, I, I, blue Blue Valentine, maybe. Right. She's gotten her third Oscar nomination now. Yeah, because it's broke back. She gets a Blue Valentine nom and, and then Marilyn. With Marilyn. Yeah. yeah. So she's a, a, a highly established actress. In yes. fact, post this, she really does nothing until Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. This is actually where her kind of break begins. And then Manchester by the Sea, she comes back and she's like, bam! That, that's her attack in the rim. <laughs> she, slams, she slams it down. She takes it to the face. Um, she's so good. Yeah. Oh, man. She's in the Fablemans. That's going to fucking rock. Anyway, yeah, she loves sam raimi yeah uh she talks about how sweet he was with her kid matilda uh how they would he sam and matilda would stand behind the monitor together and hold hands and <sighs> uh, whenever i have to do press with sam matilda sighs and says i love sam like so very <sighs> pro sam the thing she says in this franco documentary thing is that a she had never done a movie that her daughter could see before but B, she yeah. wanted to do a movie that would be fun for her daughter to hang around. Because right. I think her Which kid was, was old enough. She's a single parent. Right. She's like, and she was like, it has so wildly exceeded those expectations. She comes to set every single day. Sam always calls her our most cherished guest on set. She like loves it. She loves Aww. everybody. So it's like, good, good. Sounds good. Nice. That's nice. Her performance in this is fine. It's fine. It's a, you know, Glinda is never the most interesting, except in Wicked, where she's kind of the best character, actually. But, like, yes. usually yeah. Glinda's pretty one-dimensional. She's the nice lady. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's her vibe. I haven't read the books. Is she more interesting in the books? I don't know. I mean, she's very powerful. The problem with her, and one of the many problems with this character in this movie, is because 
she's like at this point, like the fifth pretty lady that Oz has met and interacted with. And his performance is exactly the same with every new pretty woman he meets. Like, I don't understand if we're being asked to buy that this is like his great love. Like the fact that he ends up with her, I'm like, all right, I guess. She was the last one on this game of musical chairs. She's the she's last one. nice, yeah. Well, and you do this weird thing. I mean, he he does the Wizard of Oz trick, right, of double casting people. Yes, in the opening Kansas chunk. So you got Braff, and you got Joey King. Is that it? And Michelle, and Michelle, right? Williams, which she doesn't have makeup. Like, unlike the Wizard of Oz, you know, uh, trio of Lair and Haley and Bolger where when they show up in Oz, they look entirely different. And in this movie, Braff and Joey King are CGI. You just have Michelle Williams playing two identical women, one of whom is Dorothy's mom, and the other of whom is Glinda the Good Witch. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, well, of course he's going to fuck the woman who looks like the woman he's fucked before. But also, he has no chemistry with her. He doesn't have a ton of chemistry with her. Except that she's nice. And he doesn't seem that interested. Clearly, he's not hung up on... Mrs. Gale because he was trying to have sex with Abigail Spencer mere moments before. Abigail Spencer is kind of fun in this. Yeah. I love Abigail Spencer. I am always here for Abigail Spencer. I don't, there's not yeah. enough Abigail Spencer in my life. Agreed. Fucking, what's it called? Uh, what was that show that she was on that was so rectify? No, not Suits. I never watched Suits. Suits she is was one at, of those things. She was at Meghan Markle's wedding. Hey. I mean, it's pretty cool. She got that invite. That's pretty cool. Uh, Abigail Spencer, love Abigail. What was, she was on the time travel show, right? Timeless, right? That she was, was on Timeless, and she played uh, Sally's teacher on Mad Men. She had that really good art. Oh, yeah. So good. Love her. Love her. She's the coolest. I think this opening chunk is kind of nice. It just fits Raimi tonally. And it's and the one time he's being visually interesting. Like, yes. I love the Academy ratio and the black and white and all that and how it's going to switch. That's cool. That's a and good idea. thing has good energy. Like, Raimi being at a fucking circus is fun. It looks nice. Uh, it helps that he has real sets that he can frame around. Him then cutting the wires with the machete is fun. Yes. And then and that's really my, good. I think my two favorite, like, shot sequences in this movie is one, the opening credits, because it's a good opening credit. Really good. And yeah. then when it's still Academy Ratio and he's in the uh, hot air balloon and things are sort of flying at him and he's dodging, like, wood, like, that's a fun, Raimi, like, cartoonish shot. It is just wild, though, the second he pokes his head out of the basket and the frame widens out and it goes to color and you're like, very cool. Raimi has found a way to, right. with CGI and 3D thing. and modern, do the Oz transition thing. And then from that moment on, all the air out of the balloon. It feels like it's his one really clever pitch. And then I guess he just maybe was hamstrung by the fact that he couldn't do Oz how he wanted to do Oz. I don't know. But I also think like Burton has talked about this too and how difficult it is and how few directors have the right sort of mindset to be able to shoot movies like this that are 90% green screen, where it's just like composing shots is so fucking difficult when there is like nothing to anchor your eye to, to frame around. And, you know, it's hard to know how to give the actors what they need to react off of and all that sort of shit. And they talked about Joe Roth, and this was like, we're building more sets than we did on Alice because you need more grounding 
but it's still you can feel like oh the ground beneath them is real but then everything behind them is painted you know the room is real up until this point and then from then on it's whatever i do think it just the whole thing has that weird hermetic feel to it like it has that sky captain in the world of tomorrow feel where you're just like this movie feels like it was made in one room as you're telling me to believe in these expansive landscapes even there like i fully agree with you i think visually it it sort of has that flubbery feel but there's also that weird sense with the script where they're just like script problems like the rules aren't consistent they're asking us to that to believe that all the people in Oz are impressed by this guy right. bringing out glue and bringing out a projector when actual magic exists. <laughs> How can you be wowed by glue I know, I know. in a world that magic exists? It just I That is an incredible point. That is that it's, is it's, it's it's the whole thing. It's people the whole shoot problem. lightning out of their hands right. in this movie, and he does like a smoke show, and they're like, ah, like what we don't know what to do. They literally <laughs> flew in on bubbles. Right. Magic uh... bubbles. He is levitated by witches. And they're like, but this guy, this guy knows what, you know. It is funny how with less rules and less explanation, Army of Darkness totally pulls this off, though, even though that is a world in which supernatural things do exist. Like there are wizards of actual magic and dancing skeletons. And yet Ash is able to stand up with like a boomstick and have people go like, holy shit, who the fuck is this guy? Yes. I mean, Army of Darkness, you saying that does kind of, it is a good point. Raimi, as meticulous as he can be visually and all that, his movies rarely are too invested in world building. Like the Evil Dead movies, it's all very vague and loose and it kind of, you know, whatever fits, whatever we want to do, right? Like, And the Spider-Man movies are so much less lore heavy than any modern superhero film. Incredibly light on all of that stuff. This movie seems so, inv- all it has is lore. By the yes. time he gets to Oz, that's all we're hanging our hats on. But he doesn't, he doesn't care about any of that he stuff. He doesn't. He cares about the movie. Like, he loves the magic of the Wizard of Oz. But I don't right. think he cares about, like, the, the, the you know, the, the various wicked witches of Oz and, and all that stuff, you know? No, you look at the three Evil Dead films, and the lore there is whatever it needs to be to make that scene work. You know, how do the Deadites yeah. function? Whatever will make for the most interesting sequence now. Same with Drag Me to Hell, where people are like, oh, what's this inspired by? He's like, I don't know, nothing. Like whatever. scary shit. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, like, imagine if an old lady gummed your chin. That's yeah. Up. The chin gumming. Yes. It is kind of a perfect metaphor, though, for like the gender relations in this movie that like James Franco's being paid seven million dollars to sleepwalk through when it's like these witches are doing actual magic. And it's like a guy doing a finger trick that everyone's like, yay, he shall be our king. <laughs> right. And you're like, Michelle Williams is getting 250,000 for this or whatever. She's like shooting lightning out of her hands and flying. But, but this is the other problem is, I mean, even by the time this movie comes out, Raimi is like, I'm not making a sequel in, under any circumstances. I know Disney wants to good luck to whoever takes it on next. They were so in on the idea that this was going to launch their own proprietary Oz series. There was going to be a Disney trademarked Oz that they could run with, that they could build shit in the theme parks and make more movies and whatever. This is such a weird starting point if that's what well, you want the to sequel? do. Exactly. What is the sequel? I mean, I guess it's just witch battles or whatever, but like you can't do Dorothy. No. Or you can't do Dorothy how you think or whatever. You know, like you'd have to do all this nonsense. 
And you've also cut yourself off from the books, like by the fact that it's not Ozma who's the, right. the king's daughter. Right. Like you can't even do the book stuff anymore. You can't go back to the well anymore. He's not interesting as a main character. Even if it was Downey Jr., even if you had someone who was in the pocket giving a Cracker Jack performance, we still know the end landing place for this character is kind of pathetic old man who puts on yeah. a fucking hologram show. Who's a good gift giver. Who's really good at giving gifts. That is That's true. That's thing. That's Oz's thing. Because a lot of people, when they give gifts, it feels like they want you to see that they're doing the nice thing. But he actually... Right. Or they just went to your Amazon wish list or whatever. Right. <laughs> but no, no. Oz thinks about it. His is like thoughtful. Like you just started working together as a coworker, but yet he's paying attention to and you. And also like, how did you know? Like, this is exactly what I needed. I do need courage. Yeah, I've been singing about you. this for days. <laughs> uh, some other characters in this movie. Yeah, obviously Rachel Weisz is basically that that's like calling Daniel Brühl to play a Nazi where it's like, hey, Rachel, can you play like a sort of sexy witch lady who's very imperious and Rachel Weiss is like yeah in, in she's like oh, oh you want a number four <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah do you want ah or ah like she's done this rodeo so many times in unlike heels Michelle Williams without. she knows yeah. all this stuff right right yeah. uh you've got Zach Braff uh where are we and, with Zach Braff in 2013 uh, a, a weird place. I mean, this is like because Scrubs ends in 2010, and of course he's sort of wound down. He doesn't even you know? show up and barely shows up in season nine after How everything Scrubs did for him. But then, right? When does uh, "Wish I Was Here" or whatever oh. come out? Uh, how do you not remember that that the important uh, release date of "Wish I I Was Here" the most bizarrely grammatically titled? The worst. Uh, Wish I Was Here comes out the next year, 2014. Okay. So he must have done it right after this, essentially. So that's, that's the, the weird thing with movie. his career, right? Is that like Scrubs is big. He stays on it for too long, but also stays on doing less, which does not give him any goodwill. He takes so long to make the Garden State follow up. And then he's never really tested as a movie star successfully. There's like weird shit like The Last Kiss and The X. The X. Oh, I saw that in a the theater. I, I saw The Last Kiss in the theater. It might be one of the worst films I ever saw in a theater. That movie sucks. Yeah. A Tony Goldwyn picture. Yeah. But this is this is that zone where people are like, so what is he? Is he not a leading man? Is he an auteur? Is he making his own indie films? He's not a comedy guy. Like, what? where does he fit in? Yeah. It's sort of bizarre that he does this, but then also, like, he's not just doing voiceover. He was on set every fucking day puppeteering this thing. Yeah, so I can read you the quote, which is, yes, yeah, sometimes uh, he's doing the puppet, which he would operate and act out. Not even mocap, the puppet. The puppet. But sometimes he would wear a blue screen onesie and sit on his butt mm -hmm. uh, because they realize that he's 36 inches tall if he sits on his butt and hunches over. So he would be sort of monkey sized. Uh, and the third thing was called puppet cam. If he was like flying or whatever, they would put a monitor on the end of the stick and I'd be in the video booth and they would do it via the monitor, which sounds crazy. Uh, but that's what they did. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw footage of him in the VO booth where they were just uh, filming his facial reactions as well. I don't know. I mean, he would like, he worked really fucking hard on this. There's so many interviews with Franco where he's like really being thoughtful about this and like the process of it, whatever. 
and talking about how he's just constantly looking for the funniest jokes. Raimi was trying to keep it tied to story and whatever. He's good in the- I, Wait, I, you like, mean interviews with Braff rather, not Franco? Interviews with Braff in the Franco doc, oh, where yeah, he's yeah. talking about his relationship with Raimi. And that was the main reason he did the movie, is he wanted to work with Raimi, despite yes. his face barely being on screen. I, I couldn't find it, but I remember an article from when this movie came out, because the other weird thing about this movie- not just what we're talking about of like the this being the changeover period, the last film of this run of Disney trying to make their own boy branded IP before they just gobbled everything else up. But there's like the quick succession of uh, uh, what, what's his name? It was um, uh, Dick Cook was the head of Disney films and then he got fired and they replaced him with the guy whose name wasn't Rick Ross, but was something like that. And he, Dick Cook developed this, then that guy greenlit this movie, and then when it came out, Alan Horn was the head of Disney. There were like three yeah. different heads within a four-year period who all touched this movie at different points. And I remember this article about how Alan Horn was like landing at Disney and immediately getting his, his feet dirty or whatever, saying that he was very hands-on with trying to save this movie and like demanded uh, reshoots like six months before it came out to amplify the role of Finley the monkey because Finley was like the only thing that was working. Does Finley work? He works okay. He works better than anything else. Yeah. 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 He works better than anything else. Unless, got, unlike, uh, well, China Girl. I mean, some people might argue China Girl works, right? He sort of has a Jar Jar Binks arc, right? It's like yeah. he saves his life and he's like, I'm, your, I'm not going to do a voice, but like, Misa, your humble servant. The smart thinking. Um, the the best, the funniest line in this movie, I think the only joke that actually works for me is when Franco offers him a banana. He's like, oh, that's a fact. What, just because I'm a monkey, you think I like bananas. What, could you be any more simplistic? And he's like, so you don't want a banana? He's like, of course I want a banana. I'm a monkey. That is that's pretty funny. Classic. That's funny. funny. I don't know. Ben, did you like the monkey? How, how do you, where do you come down on the monkey? Talk about family, Ben. The monkey. Hmm. I didn't like the monkey. Wow. wow the monkey's out. Wow. Wow. Yep. No, it's not that the monkey's out. I mean, Braff is fine. I'm just, maybe I'm tired of that kind of character in kids movies or something. I don't know. It just felt generic. It's, I, it's it, I didn't really lock in on the monkey at all, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it is required, Griffin. You would agree. Any children's film, even one barely a attempting to appeal to children like this one needs a, a funny sidekick who's maybe an animal, right? I, I, I would agree. I'd argue, in fact, it's probably the most important element of <laughs> right. any live action exactly. Disney hybrid movie. It can make or break. The performance of the live of the animated sidekick really does make or break the, the Disney fairy tale movie. Yeah, and I would imagine if you're someone who's like working in that capacity on a movie like this, you're probably racked with anxiety on a daily basis because you're like, if I'm annoying in this role, parents are going to have to hear this 8,000 times. Like, people aren't going to dislike this. It's going to drive them insane. Right. It'll be the, like, the name of Lucifer. Right. You're like, how do I actually make this funny, but also appealing to children? I don't know. I can't even imagine being in that position. You know what it is, Griff? Because, you know, I hear you. And I, I think yeah. what it comes down to is I was distracted by Porcelain Girl. That's really okay, just what was going on for me. Ben, okay? China but Girl Corner. Let's talk about China Girl. Please. So China Girl, they meet her in the middle of the movie. She's in some sort of ruined land. Yeah. Some sort of ruined land? Yeah. A tiny porcelain town. No, she's in a, like the most depressing looking house, though. Why did Evanora 
break? Why would she break her porcelain town when she's not? Because she's pre- mean. <laughs> but Grr. she's pretending not to be evil at this point. Yeah, she's doing I, a lot of the false logic flag of that, stuff. None of it I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. This movie was like trying so hard to sort of do the misdirect of like even Nora is going to be the Wicked Witch and not Mila Kunis, and then it gives it up like thirty minutes in. And I, she turns evil so much earlier than I remembered. And then you saw like 40 fucking minutes of the movie left. Yeah, she turns evil and then just kind of sits there for a while. She doesn't like kind of do anything about it. Yeah. I will say, have you read, have you seen the uh, A Chorus Line documentary? No, I have not. No. A, a pretty good documentary that's like, you know, talking about bringing the musical to Broadway. And the one thing that stuck out to me is they talked about how in early drafts of the musical, it was like every character gets their song mm. and that they would just sort of go down the line. And they said like four people in audience, people were like checking their playbill because you could see what's happening. And no matter how good the songs are, you just get bored by the structure. And so when he meets China girl and like helps her, that's when I was like, Ugh. cause I could see that the 10 other beats right down the line of like, all right, yeah. they assemble the team. They go, it's Glenda. Like, that was the point where I was just like, I, this is so, uh, such a slog. It is a slog. I agree with that. China Girl did nothing for me. I'm sorry, Ben. Yeah, Ben, sorry. We keep on interrupting your China Girl corner. I like China Girl. I defend you on this. I just want you to explain a little bit. I mean, it's just, there's something so striking to me about her being broken in this home by herself. It made me so sad immediately. And I wasn't paying attention to the movie. I mean, I was looking at my phone for most of this movie. I have to be honest. It was hard to pay attention. Some boring ass shit. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, truly. But I just, that, that, and then her, you know, obviously, yeah, glue isn't magic. It's lame. You know, it's just simple things we have, everyday objects. Why couldn't Glinda just use magic? Do you, do you know what was the thing I kept on, uh, that kept happening when I was watching this movie? I would think to myself, huh, you know, this isn't as bad as I remembered it being. It's fine. And then I would stop and realize I had not looked up at the screen in three minutes. <laughs> oh, this is actually pretty good. Oh, sorry. I, I mean the, the the Disney emoji blitz that, that I played. That truly <laughs> happened. I would be like, this is like, okay. And then I'd go, you're reading the dossier. You haven't looked at the screen in a scene. Ian was so mad when I looked at my tweets like a third of the way through. He's like, you can't. No, you're you put this on the TV. Put your phone away. Yeah. The fucking Franco was looking at his tweets mid take. He's fucking tweeting out things on camera. I thought that was a weird performance choice that there's several scenes where they cut to Franco and he goes, he holds up a finger. He just goes, hey, Sam, just give me one second here. Give me one second. Just <laughs> Hey, at least porcelain girl, or I keep seeing porcelain. China, China girl. girl. At least it's something girl. new. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. As far I as the character. And I liked all the little cracks. Like you could, you know. I think she is a well-realized character visually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, she, she's just, doesn't. she's a little one note. You know, she's a, she's a little fragile, right? Like she's not a lot of fun. I don't mean this as a joke. That, that's so alpha of you to say, David. She's not yeah. fun because she's too fragile. No, she's annoying. When she's like, well, someone took me in. I'm like, you're annoying. <laughs> she's a little you. girl. Come on. Sometimes they want to be tucked. Kids like to be tucked. That's true. I truly think also Franco has better chemistry with China Girl than anyone else in the movie. 
sure, yeah. he's actually a little sweet with her. That's yeah. true. He's he has more chemistry with, with the virtual characters in general, I would say, weirdly. It's, like, yeah. he's got a little bit of banter with the monkey, I guess. Yeah. This is true grabbing at straws, though. It's, yeah, no, it's yes, not, yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you guys want some more context? They shot it in a giant uh, Rally, Michigan Studios, a giant complex in uh, in Pontiac, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge tax benefits, oh so that's God. great. Obviously, Sam Raimi is from Michigan, so yeah, I like that. That's, Sweet. that's nice. Yeah. Can we can we talk about the comedy? Like, what oh, do please. we think of the style of comedy of this movie? Uh, bad? bad? Yeah, bad. bad. What? Oh what God. What comedy? Remind non, me. I don't know. Non-comedy. I don't know. What it, what? The Danny Elfman score is really Edward Scissorhands. Like, it felt Very. like he went back to, like, his, his trash and was like, what did I not use for Edward Scissorhands? I know. And this is, like, their big reunion after, like, 10 yeah. years of fighting or whatever. Five, whatever. Five not years. Ten, yeah. Right. Five years. Five, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they figured it Almost out. Almost 10. Nine years. I don't know. It's in between uh, no, Spider-Man 2 and is, oh uh, yeah! No, but he I never guess, even worked because, on right, Spider-Man. He never 3. really worked on it. So yeah, yeah, no, ten years. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. As I was listening to it, I was like, "Oh, this score is not bad." And like the music box sort of has a a motif that repeats. Yeah. And then in my head afterward, I was just imagining the Edward Scissorhands score. <laughs> when right, I played right. it back, when I was like, "Oh, that's not bad," and I would remember it. I realized I was remembering Elfman. He's like Horner. He's like a lot of these guys where it's like you know a phoned-in Elfman score is pretty likable. And then you yes. realize, like, oh, he's just right. He's just doing what he usually does, right? You know. And then when he does something different, you're like, oh, that's exciting. But yeah, he'll often just do Elfman. Can I read an amazing quote from the IMDb trivia? You can. JJ will be mad at you, but you. No, can. I know. I know. Look, when I quote a, a Wikipedia thing or a trivia thing in a post JJ professional researcher error, I want to make it clear that what I'm saying is unsubstantiated, and I just am reading it for what it is. But this one, I think it's pretty hard to argue with, David, okay? The taxpayers of the state of Michigan, population 9.6 million, reimbursed Disney $40 million of this film's budget, but have no equity in the film. Now, you can't argue with that. Now, what if they did? What now, if what everyone if from Michigan got like a check for 80 cents every week or whatever? That is so, <laughs> I have never seen someone write something like that in an IMDb trivia page. They're obviously most cities so and states. An angry Michiganer is right. writing One that. One angry Michiganer. One guy running for city council. That is absolutely someone in Michigan went to see this movie. Went, I fucking paid for this bullshit. <laughs> Twice. You did. I paid for a ticket and I fucking paid for Franco's like catering or whatever. Um, um the, what was I going to say about Michigan? Uh, but but Sam Raimi got to go home. Aren't you? Aren't you happy about that? Listen to him. I like that. I think that's sweet. Listen to him. I had to move to Los Angeles for the film business, but I love the trees in the fall, the rain, the gray skies, and I like the cold. You know, like he yeah. he, he he misses the 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 seasons. He misses. The reality of Michigan. God, Olivia Wilde, Amy Adams, Blake Lively, Kate Beckinsale, Kira Knightley, Rebecca Hall, and Kristen Stewart were considered for the roles of the witches. I mean, once again, insubstantiated, but like of, unsubstantiated. Yeah, a bunch of ladies. But, from uh, but that I'm sure era. that, that yeah. fucking wish list was just the 20 most prominent actresses in Hollywood at that moment for those three roles. Oh boy. Uh, this film obviously is 70% CGI. Um, uh, so mostly acting in front of blue screens. But as you noted, Griff, Stromberg did build some sets. You know, there is a little bit of tactility. They're at least standing on something, like you said. Like, you know, yeah. there's kind of a little tiny bit of that. 
Is is tinkers a race or an occupation? Is that like an ethnic group of people? They're an occupation. Are they teamsters? Right, because Bill Cobb is supposed to be the guy who builds the Tin Man. Yes, Bill Bill Cobb is the tinker, and he is not small. Well, he's he not still a tinker. Person. He's a tinker. He's you know, he, I believe he's called Master Tinker. He's there a, the leader of the tinkers, uh-huh. uh, and right, and he'll eventually build the Tin Woodsman. But all of the people playing uh, Munchkins or whatever are are little people. Like mm-hmm. they, they just they just cast little people, right? You know, they didn't do any CGI stuff. But I'm saying we come to Glinda's. I mean, they do do they do like CGI flips a bunch. Yeah, well, to do a lot of flips. <laughs> sure. CGI flips, man. <laughs> yeah. Zach Cherry but, would love this movie. But I'm saying when we when we get to Glinda's like kingdom and she's like, there's, you know, farmers that are, you know, and then there's tinkers who all kind of look alike, and there's, you know, munchkins and quad quadlings, tinkers and munchkins. Are the tinkers like a an ethnic race of people? It, it, I don't think anyone should say the word ethnic about anything in Oz. It feels like Pandora's yeah, box. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I just, I just don't want to dig into what any of this is supposed to represent. Yeah. I don't want to dig into what any of these people are supposed <laughs> to look like. I just think it's very tricky territory. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But yes, I, look. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think, I think, yeah, they are, they are a group in the world of Oz that seem to be organized in some way. The tinkers are like a, a people of sorts, I guess, right? The, I'm just like the the setup of Oz in this movie is wildly unclear and makes me just like feel disoriented. I don't know what you're talking about. It's very clear. Okay, wait. They're like, um, what's Fraggle Rock? What's the... Um... All right, the ben, workers, no. <laughs> get, no. Get doozers. Oh, the doozers, the doozers, the doozers. Yeah. No, but Griff, and correct me if I'm wrong, Griff. This yeah. is all very simple. Sure. Oz is a magical land. Emerald uh, City is its capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The king recently died under mysterious circumstances. It was definitely the fault of the really nice lady who wears pink and white and floats around in bubbles, and not the fault of the lady in the black dress who shoots lightning out of her hand. Okay. Yeah, it was his nice daughter who clearly everyone loves. And Asgard is a people, not a place. Yes. Right. Uh, various kinds of things live in Oz. Uh, porcelain people, munchkins, tinkers, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sometimes the munchkins will stand on each other's shoulders and they'll be really tall. That's fun. Uh, anyway, fun. if the king shows up, he gets to be king of Oz. He gets to sit on a throne and he gets to uh, have a giant pool of money that is David, gold. David. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gold scepter. You're forgetting the most important part. <laughs> of course, of course. Very, very, very important. Anyway, and there are various witches who are kind of just hanging out waiting for something to do. Yeah. Very, very, very clear world. Lots to understand. All makes sense. Oh, uh, they're flying monkeys. And then there's a separate kingdom under a bubble that only if you're pure of heart can you get in. Travel through yeah. bubbles. Yeah, you want to know a fun fact? Uh, here's another uh, fun fact. Uh, you know the scene where James Franco's rolling around the gold? Yeah. Uh, that was his salary for this movie. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, he actually asks for his salary in Scrooge McDuck banks that he gets to swim around in. Well, well, but, but look, he thought it was an interesting statement on capitalism. I mean, he was doing that. <laughs> right. Not because he's a yeah. money grubber, but because. Yeah, he made a movie called Dollar Sign that was on Vimeo or it whatever. It played upside down in an art gallery or some shit. Uh, I re- I rewatched the original film last night because I hadn't watched it in a while. The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard the of Vic- Oz. The Victor Fleming joint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. Have you folks yeah. ever seen it? 
Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, you know what else is fun about that movie is it's a musical. Yeah. Yeah, it's got songs. This right. has like one song. Which we talk about fucking Spider-Man 3 has three musical numbers in it. Right. And and like I was saying in that episode that people were commenting at the time, like it feels like he wants to make a musical and you wish he could go full bore. The other part of the development of this movie, I mean, so when, uh, what's his name? The um, the whole nine yard guy, Kapner. When he yeah, pitches this, <laughs> yeah, yeah Kapner. When yeah. he pitches this to Disney, they developed this under the title Brick. And yeah. he was like, I was only allowed to tell two people in my life that I was working on this because Disney was so terrified that other people would like try to get an Oz movie made before them. They were so terrified of the Wicked movie happening before them. They were terrified of other studios wanting to make their own rival, Snow White and the Huntsman style uh, Oz movies. One could say they were cowardly. They were cowardly. But it, but it is bizarre to not lean into the musical aspect of this, especially if your goal is to beat Wicked to the punch. Why not put fucking songs in this? That having been said, Alice in Wonderland has zero songs. Maleficent has zero songs. Jungle Book, like, tiptoes around two songs. Kind of does songs, right. But right. And they never yeah. learn their lesson. Like, Mulan doesn't have any song. That live-action Mulan had no songs. But it truly yep. took until Beauty and the Beast where they were like, fine, fine, you want the musical numbers. And it was like, Disney, why are you fucking tentative about putting your songs? Yeah, you've got a bit of a proven formula, actually, right, <laughs> yeah. if you lean into it. It actually, people quite like it. Yeah. Right. I'm confused, though, because I thought you were supposed to immediately fast-forward when the song started. Ben. Did you, wow, ben. did you guys not immediately have to get just get past it? Is that really what you did, Ben? That makes so much sense. Yeah, As a kid, true. you'd be like, boring. Oh, wait, no. I'm talking about the fucking movie that I watched for this goddamn episode. Yeah, <laughs> oh, whatever this the movie. one oh, fucking song what? that's in the movie. I'm not talking about the original. They're leaving a song. Jesus. Yeah. You all looked at me like I was a monster. Right. I, well, I thought you were saying like you fast forwarded through like somewhere over the rainbow. Right. No. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, no, I'm such, I cry at dogs. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> this movie, you should hit play, yeah. right? Hit play on the movie and then immediately hit the fast forward button. Yeah. All the way up. All the and way. And then when the movie ends... That's it. That, that's how you should absorb this Well, the this end movie. credits are yeah. good. You can go normal speed yeah, for the Yeah, slow it down, slow it yeah. down, slow it down. <laughs> Bring it back to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So you watched The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film directed yeah. by Victor Fleming starring Judy Garland. Did you like yeah. it? How many stars? Uh, five stars, perfect film. It is one of those things. <laughs> it's pretty good. It, it's just kind of inexplicable how well that thing works. But it does sort of just prove the fool's errand of ever trying to make another Oz movie, unless you're doing something so fucking radically different. I mean, like, I love uh, a Return to Oz. I'm one of the world's greatest uh, defenders of Sidney Lumet's The Wiz. But, uh, you know, both of those movies got dinged for being weirdly dark and sad. Uh, and then anytime, because there was like that weird CGI Oz movie that came out a couple years ago. That was called like Dorothy's Oz or something. I believe Warner Brothers is now making an animated film called Toto that's trying to use the iconography that they legally own to retell Oz from their viewpoint. It just feels like one of those things where like, I mean, Wizard of Oz is notoriously was like a, uh, not only a flop when it came out, but it was like a difficult production, went through multiple directors, all this sort yep. of shit. It's like that movie is just some weird miracle. Every design element they landed on ended up being perfect. Every performance is perfect judy garland was on 
Four hours of sleep and weight loss drugs the whole time. On methamphetamine, yeah. right. essentially, yes. Right, right. It's like a fucking sweatshop, like, performance. Uh, like, for all the weird drama and darkness around that movie, it's just everything about that movie just crystallizes correctly, and you're never going to get better than that. Yeah, The Wizard of Oz is a tough act to follow, and Sam Raimi's initial instinct to stay away from this movie was the right one. Good. But then, of course, he read the script, which I assume is he was presented with a bag of money. But maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe he talked himself into, there's a way to pay homage to The Wizard of Oz through this. Maybe. I, I, I don't truly, know. I think that was half and, of it. And that thing about the connection to the magician and the showman and that the charlatan thing. thing but you, but that you know gets what the other lost. thing is? Yeah. You know what the other thing is, Griffin? And this isn't true of all directors, but it's true of a lot. And it's true of a Sam Raimi type, I think. is like, what if I could make a, a top shelf Disney movie? Like some yeah. people are kind of like, oh, the magic of like a perfect family Disney movie. Like mm -hmm. that's special. Maybe you want that like on your resume. I don't also, look, that Alan Horn piece that I cannot find where he took credit for adding more Finley to the film also made it sound like they reshot 40% of the movie like six months before it came out. And I, when all the stories were coming out about Doctor Strange and how many reshoots there were, I was worried that this was exactly what it was going to feel like, where it was just like, this whole movie has been smoothed over and sanded off and is just sort of like generic goop. And, you know, Doctor Strange, I think, is uh, half a movie that feels like that and half a full bore, completely recognizable Sam Raimi shit. And I wonder if he just got lost in the machinery of making a movie like this, if the he couldn't recover from the copyright shit, if yeah. the reshoots just totally erased whatever personality was there. But I just got so fucking bummed out watching that interview with Franco, where I saw it for the first time, I fucking saw on an emotional level why he did this movie. And then it is so depressing to watch this film and recognize the thing there and have it not connect at all. Here's what I think happened, Griffin. You want to listen up? Yeah. Maybe get some behind the scenes scoop from me. I think uh, he was given an apple by an evil witch and he ate it and it turned into a bad director for six her months. Her tears are acid. They burn her. She, she she melts with water. Well, yeah, that's a reference to her being bottled oh, with water. Of oh, course, oh. That's because, you know, they can't they can't be out in front of that, but but yeah, her so is this yes this is any first, water this is the first time she's ever cried in her life and she does it twice in one day over the least charismatic man in the world showing her a tiny bit of affection for 11 minutes griffin she was clearly born yesterday so i don't know what you mean like it does not appear like this person has been alive for a very long time you folks have seen that interview where she's doing a press junket and they send like a college student to interview her from some British station. Yes, yes. Uh, good, good, good. JJ had this in the... It, it was sort of a viral thing. That, it was that incredible. I have it. What is it? Yeah. You've, you might have seen it, Dana. You might remember it if you saw it. He's like asking her questions about like going out drinking with his friends and shit. <laughs> He's just like so sort of like innocent and just like sort of like my friends all think you're really hot. You did have a fun time if you came out drinking. But he's like not being like sleazy with her. Yeah. And she's like, this is incredible. This is the best interview I've ever done. You're the only person in days who's talked to me like a real person. And it's, then he's like, great. 
He's like, I'm sorry. I'm like an intern. They sent me. I'm fucking this up. I should ask you questions about the movie. And she's like, I don't want to talk about this movie ever again. And then she does this thing where she's like, here, here's every answer I have about the movie. And she speed runs it for like 30 seconds. And she's That's like, I play amazing. a woman who's very innocent. And she gets her emotions abused by this man. But I found interesting about the character was the duality. I did try to find the humanity and the root of what she was. This and that. Anyway, go on. Where do you and your friends go out drinking? And she just has this. Yeah, he's like going to a wedding, maybe. And right. he like ropes her into that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But but it's like the answer where she just says, like, here are all the bullet points of what I would say in a fucking drunken interview for about this character in the arc. This whole movie just feels like that. I mean, that's that's charming. I'm going to go watch that interview. I think Mila Kunis is cool. I think she's cool. She's a Ukrainian Jew. You know, she's from Ukraine. She's been doing a lot of really fucking good work. Yeah. Like raising money during the crisis. Yeah. She's married to Ashton Kutcher, which is, you know, kind of weird. But I remember, I think she was on the Conan podcast. Was that right? Yes. 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 And then Ashton Kutcher like showed up in the middle. Oh. And it was one of those things where you're like, you, you know, you have the cynical thought of like, is this like something they staged or whatever? But like, it truly just seems like he's coming home from work or whatever. And they're all chatting. That's cool. very nice. Yeah. yeah That's sweet. Nice. Yeah, she always, seems like a nice lady. I've always liked her. And she does just have a very unique energy. Like it was this that moment in the early 2010s when everyone thought suddenly, oh, is she a movie star? It was kind of exciting because she is unique. She doesn't look like anybody. She doesn't sound like anybody. Yeah, she's a little unique. It's true. Yeah, She's yeah. got a very interesting vibe, and there was like an interesting range of like, huh, she's very different in Black Swan than she is in this, than she is in that. And uh, I don't know. I she can she be funny. Back. Yeah, she's, she's funny. I remember when Forgetting Sarah Marshall came together, like I was so excited for it because it was like, one, the Apatow thing was still like barely yeah. new. And two, it was like, I was like, oh my God, the guy I like most from Freaks and Geeks is making a movie. And then, like, Veronica Mars is in it. Right. Oh, and Russell Brand. That's interesting. And then and then I was like, oh, and Mila Kunis. Who cares? I, I, I had no interest. In, like, I was like, yeah. oh, sure, from that 70s show. And then she's, like, one of the best things about the movie. Like, yeah, that, that was where I was like, oh, she's so charismatic. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Cunissance, please. But this is where we're... Yeah, Cunissance, please. But this is, this is when we are clearly... We have nothing good to say about this movie, where we're just like, well, Mila Kunis seems nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, like... Like they we're, we're we're out. We're, we're like there's nothing to say about Oz the Great and Powerful. They have a big battle at the end. It makes no sense. He uses magic. It makes no sense. It he uses sucks. stage magic to win a battle. He faked his own death in a way that you're like, you didn't for whose benefit? Uh, and then he gets to be the king, but in a good way, sort of. I guess he's yeah. not doing it for profit. He he's he gives he gives gives everyone a gift, and then he's like, and your gift, Glinda, is behind this curtain, and it was. It was him. It's there's, him going. <laughs> there's there's a, a Katie Waldman review or piece about this movie when it came out from Slate. Uh-huh. And the headline just really kind of sums it up where it's in Raimi's odds, male frauds are heroes and female frauds are pathetic. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not to underline too hard, but like it, it just that is the thing where just this movie keeps on trying to tell us like, you know, you should like this guy. Yeah, and that it, it did not work. I mean, from the beginning, when I'm like, he literally is like, "There's a sock on the door" because he's trying to like hook up with this girl he's tricking, and like, then he's kind of mean to Michelle Williams, who's like, "I want to be with you," and he's like, "Shove it!" And but he doesn't do it in a funny or charming way. You know what this performance feels like? You know when you watch like documentaries about things like Fire Festival, and everyone who's talking is like Billy McFarlane was the most 
charismatic person I've ever met. Right. You don't understand it. That guy got you in a room and you were just throwing money at him. Yeah. Right. And then you watch the interview and you're like, I see through this guy. This guy's got nothing <laughs> right. going on. What am I missing here? It feels like everyone in the movie is telling you, like, God, when Oscar Diggs looks in your eyes, you'll you'll follow him anywhere. You believe he is the great and powerful Oz. And I'm watching, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? It makes everyone seem really stupid. Yeah. That's the problem. And it makes the girls, the women seem pathetic because they're, why are you even devoting any energy to this no. idiot? Except for Vice, who sees through him right away. Pretty yeah. much. Right away. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, good, look what you're saying, what everyone is saying, and then let's just play the box office game. Please. It's like, uh, you know, obviously if I'm Sam Raimi and I'm looking at the script, I am like, yeah, this guy needs to turn from villain to hero. He needs to turn from Cad to to heartwarming you know dad right mm -hmm. like that makes sense from and so the dad. script yeah so the script has that arc in it it's just that his performance doesn't change much and it doesn't so so at the end where everyone's like oh you're so great i'm like he is like, are we sure? <laughs> the movie happens on a green screen conveyor belt behind him while he stays right. exactly in the same place he's yeah. pretty much you know kind of the same yeah he's not caddish enough and then he's not charming enough griffin oh you know what we should talk about before we end mm -hmm. that that we get the backstory on the broomstick <laughs> oh boy he he teaches her that witches are supposed to have broomsticks, but she does come up with pointy hat on her own. She she independently comes up with pointy she, hat. Well, she goes from floppy hat to pointy hat. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge, it's a big character arc. It's a huge um, important thing that we need to learn. Yeah. It is funny that at the end of the movie, she's like, I'm wicked. And he's like, well, if you ever wanted to not be wicked, we would forgive you. And she's like, no, and leaves. Like, there's, like, why even do that? If you ever want to not be wicked, uh, you know where I am uh, here in the kingdom of Oz. Right. She's like, no, goodbye. And you're like, right. She can't turn good again. She's the wicked witch. Like, this is what you set up. Look, on the point of the box office game, a transition here. I remember when the one of the later trailers came out and it included... They, they never showed uh, the witch design in the trailers, right? Well, they tried really hard to hide yes. that she was becoming the Wicked Witch. Right. Yes. She's on the poster in the floppy hat. They, right. They're trying to keep you guessing. And one trailer had the the end uh, sort of money shot was the green hand with the nail scraping the, across. The, the claws. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then the other trailer, the money shot at the end was when the fire starts to swirl and you see the silhouette of the witch design. And I remember on, you know, Slash Film or whatever, when that trailer posted, someone in the comments saying that final shot just got them a hundred million dollar opening. Mm. And it almost did. It almost did. This film opened March 8th, 2013. So pretty much the, fan, uh, the Alice in Wonderland spot mm -hmm. to $79 million. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. For a movie that no one remembers or cares about. And for a, a, a bad movie. Bad. For a movie that is boring and long. But it truly was one of those things where I feel like it wasn't tracking incredibly well, and then they put the witch teases in the trailer, and then it, like, went up. I buy that. Yes. It made $234 million domestically. One of the 10 highest grossing films of that year. Yep. It made $490 million worldwide. Uh, so it was quite successful. And I think it maybe does not make the top 10 yet worldwide. No, it doesn't. No. Um, but it makes it domestic, which is insane. Number one, Oz the Great and Powerful. Number two is an even more ill-advised quasi-family movie set in the world of children's fantasy. 
Huh. Even more ill-advised. Yes. Set in the world of children's fa- Is it opening this weekend? No, it opened last weekend. It was a bomb and it's made $43 million in two weeks. Huh. Is it based on, it's based on a, a pre-existing children's fantasy? It's based on a fairy tale. Is it Pan? No. Huh. If Oz does not exist, this is like, you know, doesn't exist on the quantum levels. Like right. the physicists could not find traces of it in, oh. in anyone's atoms. Okay. It's not mirror, mirror. No. It is, but I'm on the right zone. It's like one of those canonical fairy tale. Yeah, it's a canonical fairy tale. It's a riff. Dana, do you have any instinct on this? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, It's directed by a canceled person. It's directed by a canceled person. Highly canceled. It's not Brett Ratner's Hercules. No. Is it I Love You Daddy? Yeah, open to I mean $43 million. Uh it's uh it was why why very delayed. Oh, I think oh, it came out oh, like a oh, year oh, after oh, it was supposed oh, to. Oh, oh, yeah, oh. okay. Well then say it. Jack the Giant Slayer. Correct. You had to struggle to think of the title. But yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it is Brian Singer's Jack the Giant Slayer, starring Nicholas Holt and Ewan McGregor, among other people. So, is that uh, live action or animated? Live action. Oh, no. It's live, ac- live action like this is live action. The Mostly most. CGI. I can't believe these movies came out in back-to-back weekends. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that ridiculous? That's like a two-car pileup. Um, <laughs> the most insane thing about that movie is that Brian Singer really wanted to direct X-Men First Class and had signed up for this. And he asked Warner Brothers to let him push back Jack the Giant Slayer in order to do first class. And they were like, no. And if you quit, we'll sue you. <laughs> they were so adamant about making that movie, making it with Singer right away that they were like, don't you dare fucking quit this movie. This is a go. Oh, we're wait. not stopping this for anything. Uh, I know we're in the box office game, but I feel like we'd be one more Oz great and powerful detail that we didn't mention at all is Bruce Campbell's in it briefly. Oh, yeah. God, a movie so depressing. We can't even conjure up the energy to discuss the Bruce cameo. I know, but he's there. And I just want to let him, you know, he showed up. He put on the fake mustache. He's a winkle guard or fucking. (laughs) Yes, he is. He's fine. A winky dinky guard or some (laughs) shit. I'll throw this movie in the trash. He should have played Oz. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, he'd Ima- be good. Imagine if Robert Downey Jr. dropped out and Sam Raimi was like, look, we're two weeks away from filming. You gotta, you gotta hire Bruce Campbell or I'm quitting. What's number three at the box office? It's a comedy. It's a comedy launching a new star. She's, she's breaking out as the star of this film. Huh. Uh, she's up. She's she's being paired with a guy oh, who's in a lot thief. of comedies. It's identity thief. Yeah, Jason Bateman, a big is hit. a guy, and Melissa McCarthy is the thief of his identity. Yeah, I guess not a good movie. Uh, big hit. Not a good movie. Big hit. Uh, agree with both of those things. Number four is a new movie this week, mostly forgotten. I feel like you invoked it recently, Griffin. Huh. Um, it's like a crime thriller. Starring okay. one of my favorite actors. Colin Farrell? Yep. It's uh, it's the one I invoked it because uh, it was weirdly produced by the WWE. Is it, uh, what's it called? Correct. Dead Man Down? It's called Dead Man Down. It is a Colin Farrell film that I've never seen. A Vince McMahon. It's from the guy who directed the Swedish uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo oh, movie. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, and so Numi Rapace is in it. Mm-hmm. And Dominic Cooper and Terrence Howard. Sounds yeah. like Murray a fun time, Abraham. actually. 
Dead Man Down. It's kind of incredible you haven't seen that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But it's opening number four at $5 million. Okay. So okay. I don't know. No one was really seeing it. Number five is an action thriller that I hmm. feel like you have said is not bad, Griffin. It's kind of one of the last movies starring this guy before he just becomes a four-quadrant guy. Huh. Oh, is it co- Contraband? It's not Contraband. That's Mark Wahlberg, which is another good choice for what I'm describing. Similar guy. Uh, used to make movies like this. The Rock? The Rock. Dwayne Johnson himself. And this is one I like. Is it Snitch? It's Snitch. Do you like Snitch? Am yes. I wrong? I can't remember. Snitch low-key good. Yeah, right? Snitch is one you sort of stick up for. Snitch I stick up for. And not only that, if uh, th- this was before our podcast existed, Bur- I would have given Bernthal a supporting Oscar nomination for Snitch. I would have given him a supporting blankie. Yeah, he can give me support anytime. Bernthal like snitches the shit out of that movie. Uh, no, sn- snitch Loki good. But right, isn't that the end of Dwayne doing, you know, yeah. like Walking Tall-esque movies, right? I think it's the last one. And Snitch is like much more of a sort of meat and potatoes drama as well. It's kind of he's impressively... Acting. He's acting. Oh, it's, it's a Rick Roman walk. Yeah, it's this year he has Snitch. He has Pain and Gain. He's Fast and Furious 6, obviously. But it's like next year is Hercules. And then it's Furious 7, San Andreas, Central right. Intelligence, Moana, Fate of the Furious, Baywatch. Jumanji, Rampage, Skyscraper. It's all big movies that are rock-centric. And fucking Snitch. Dwayne Johnson, Barry Pepper, Benjamin Bratt, Harold Perrineau, Susan Sarandon, John Bernthal, Michael K. Williams, David Harbour. Sounds good. That's good. Good cast. Snitch low-key good. That's the box office. We've also got, what the fuck is this, 21 and over? Oh, that's the Miles Teller fake ID beer run movie. I feel like that was a movie that had a lot of different names at certain points. I that think sounds so. right. So that's that's one of that run of uh, super bad, post super bad, uh, R rated uh, teen boy yep. movies that I auditioned for. There was another one just like this, but with Zac Efron, right? Well, there, that's uh, well, uh, seventeen again. <laughs> that awkward moment. That awkward oh, moment. Oh, that yeah. awkward moment. Ugh. That's a little more dating is tough. Oh. And 21 and more... over is in the Project X. This like, one is like, they're 21 now, so they're yeah. going to do it. Oh, oh. The kids fucking go crazy. Just, look, I just saw, speaking of Miles Teller, I just saw Top Gun Maverick in which he is behaving himself is the best way to put that performance. Interesting. You know what I mean? It, not, not in a bad way, but that just feels like Tom Cruise took him aside and was like, look, you got one more shot. You got one? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just fucking give a normal performance in this. Like, I know you're a pretty good actor. And he's like, yeah. all right, sure, fine. I Is he good in it? Weird. Yeah, yeah, he's totally good. He's fine. Wow. But, but like, he's also not particularly interesting. Like, hmm. it's fine. Uh, I know he's he's a Kaczynski guy, I know. So it's not just Tom Cruise. Like, he did Only the Brave. He did. He's in the new Kaczynski right. movie as well. So, like, obviously Kaczynski likes him. But, uh, yeah, just kind of feels like someone sat him down and was like, how many more blockbusters are you looking to be in? Is it if it's more than one? <laughs> then... <laughs> God, twenty one uh, and over is Justin Chan, Miles Teller, Skylar Raston. It's it's oh. uh, it's, it's a real snapshot. They really yeah. tried. They were spreading, <laughs> spreading it I wide know. to see what would happen. Directed by the writers of Hangover, that was the other big yes, thing. Yes, John Lucas movie. Scott Moore. Right, right, right. right, right. right. You, speaking of Zac Efron, uh, he's not in this, but he might as well have been. Safe Haven. Remember that? Oh. It's Duhamel, right? Oh, and yeah. Julianne Safe Julianne Haven. Huff. 
Safe Haven has a, a like a quietly insane twist ending. What's right. the, we can't talk about uh, that. No, I, we can't. No. We I, I saw Safe Haven right. with Bobby Finger. Look at the Safe Haven Wikipedia page. That's all I'm telling I people. I feel like we have mentioned this on a different episode, Griffin. It rings a bell that there's yeah. some wild. Probably a, a Bobby episode. But that's a Lost of Halstrom movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Insane. Insane. Yep. Insane. Then you've got Silver Linings Playbook hanging around. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got something called Escape from Planet Earth. Don't really remember that. Seems to be a Weinstein movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's Some a Brendan sort of Fraser film. CGI right. movie that doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, of course, The Access, Last Exorcism Part 2. They should have sued. They said the last one was The Last Exorcism. I know. They should have called on. It, They should have called it the second to last exorcism. This is like when they did The Neverending Story Part 2. Come yeah. on. Get the fuck out of here. You said the last one was. <laughs> uh, that's it. Yeah, uh, so it goes on to be a hit. It makes enough money to justify a sequel and to justify another Sam Raimi movie quickly. We get neither because everyone smelled that this thing was a rotting corpse. Yeah. Like, that's really what it is. It is one of those things where, like, they had, like, mapped up plans of, like, if this movie works, we build a whole Ozland at Disney. We'll keep this going. We'll stay in the world of Oz for decades. Oz, 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 Oz. Right. And then just everyone was like, there's no energy for this. No actor seemed like they no. wanted to be in this. No. It's like, you're going to do sequels? And they're like, well, we're contractually obligated. <laughs> like, but like, yeah. they pushed through on Maleficent 2 and on Alice 2 many years too late when right. the energy was clearly gone and both of those movies flatlined. And this, it just felt like within three months of it coming out, they were like, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. Maleficent 2 low-key made half a billion dollars. That's insane. Half a billion dollars. Half Ed Screen is the main villain in it. Wow. Ed Screen. He's a dark fae, of course. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, we're done. We're, oh, we're very done. Yeah. Uh, with Oz forever. And forever. thank yeah. God. One reason we never did Sam Raimi mm -hmm. was we didn't want this to be the last yeah. movie in his fucking filmography. For the entire run of our podcast, this had been his last film. And now we don't have to end on the note of like, well, it would be nice if he made another movie. Now the note can be, yeah, uh, he had another movie and we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. And you know what? It's nice that whatever you think of Multiverse of Madness, it is definitively not this. And he seems energized to make something new soon. And people are giving him credit. Like, I, I feel like people are largely giving him credit for that movie and reacting positively to the stuff that he contributes. And hopefully it means that the next person who hires Sam Raimi to make a movie will let him be Sam Raimi. Yeah. Dana, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. I hope it was. You'll get a better movie eventually. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun. Yeah, Dana, don't worry. Don't worry. You'll get a better movie uh, in about six to eight months when we cover another movie about a bad witch. <laughs> I want both parts of the Wicked movie. Witches okay, with sure. bad ex-boyfriends. Yeah, perfect. Um, your book? Yeah, Anatomy, A Love Story. Buy it wherever uh, books are sold. New York Times bestseller. New York Times bestseller. Yeah. You can buy it almost anywhere in the world. Reese Witherspoon likes it. My close personal friend, Reese Witherspoon, Reese. likes the book. Yeah, and uh, listen to the podcast Noble Blood if you want the exact opposite vibe of this podcast. Perfect. Hell yeah.
yeah. a, a, a slightly more hangs together a little uh, tighter than than blank check, I would say. Also, then Oz the Great and Powerful, the ultimate compliment. It's a little <laughs> tighter than Oz the Great and Powerful. Just a little tighter. Every script of my every episode script is a little tighter than this. A little movie. bit tighter than Oz the Great and Powerful. Thank you so much for being here, Dana. And thank you all so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. Thank you to AJ McKee and Alex Barron for our editing, JJ Birch for our research, uh, Leigh Montgomery in the Great American Novel for our theme song, Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to all sorts of nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com slash blankcheck for blankcheck special features. We're doing commentaries on the Batman movies we haven't covered before. Hashtag not all Batman. Tune in next week for the end of this yellow brick road, the road of Raimi, with uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Ha 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 ha. Ha 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 ha. Indeed. And as always, China Girl Innocent. Blah.